0: We, we can talk two hours easily.
1: I know we could. You see the stuff I sent through. Now, there's stuff to stay away from. There's no point going into geopolitics or any of that. Listen,
0: listen, we're, we're not going to go into geopolitics. Yeah. I've started recording, by the way.
1: Okay, okay brilliant.
0: So basically, look, um, I'm very late to the party. Zoe Harkum. <laughs> very late. You know, I, I was, I've been on this journey of like, discovering my health in the last five years. Um, But I haven't really been looking at what other people are saying and doing. My wife and I have kind of like stumbled over things ourselves and just finally kind of figured out what works and what doesn't. And it's really quite simple for us. It was just avoid all processed foods, um, restrict our eating window to, you know, now it's four hours and fast every day and every day, no exception. Um, optimize and prioritize sleep and um, have a really high um, animal fat and protein diet and minimize processed carbohydrates and minimize sugar intake. And that has been absolutely fantastic for us, okay? And we've just figured it out. And what we've been shocked at is that so much of what I was taught in med school, what my wife and I, and she's a doctor too, have learned, the tv news media whatever is absolute bullshit and it's absolutely shocking you know how it's the complete opposite to what actually is good health and that's where you know then i kind of like stumbled across you and the statins now subsequently having done some research and looked into what you've done i mean you're a legend
1: oh thank you
0: no i mean this you are an absolute legend. And the problem is, I don't actually know what to talk about. I'm, normally, I have a guest on. I want to talk about a specific thing. With you, I could talk to you about almost anything because you've covered everything practically.
2: Anything
1: diet and health, and, and particularly the diet aspect of health. That's what I mean. So don't talk to me about your field of orthopedics or whatever. But. I,
0: no, but I mean exactly about diet and health. But for me, food is medicine. Food is health everything starts with what you eat and then your gut, your mind your body everything else falls into place so yeah I mean what you cover and what you talk about is pivotal for health and it's incredible that you've been doing this for such a long time like you you're like a trailblazer I feel like I'm just catching up <laughs> I'm like I'm still miles behind you so it's a real honor I mean that
1: Thank you. Do you know, and I beat myself up for things as well. So I was a calorie counter when I was a teenager, as most females were of that generation. Mm. And I remember when I first worked out that that, do you remember that thing where they say one pound equals three and a half thousand calories? Yeah. So to lose one pound of fat, you need to create a deficit of three and a half thousand calories, which is seven times 500 calories. So that would lose you a pound a week. Or if you cut back by a thousand calories, then you lose two pounds a week. I could have slayed that at the time and it was about another 15 years before I'm like, hang on a sec. And then I went looking into it. One pound doesn't even equal three and a half thousand calories. Yeah, It just doesn't. And I could go back into some papers from sort of the early 1900s to show that that is the case. So first of all, that bit is wrong. And then you will not lose a pound of fat if you cut back by three and a half thousand calories. You just don't. And I say at conferences sometimes, I say, so if the calorie theory held, I eat quite a lot at the moment, so I could easily cut back by a 1,000 calories a day, and that would lose me two pounds a week. I weigh, I don't know, not even 110 pounds. So at the end of the year, I'd be half a stone. (laughs) And and people laugh at the conferences, and I'm like, why are you laughing? I've just slayed the calorie theory, which you have all been doing. All you women started, particularly women, you started a calorie-controlled diet on a Monday. By Tuesday, you were so hungry you wanted to kill yourself. Yeah. And then you lapsed. And we can go into all of why that happens. But it just doesn't work. The idea that the body goes, oh, there you go. I'm just a cash machine for fat. You wanted to lose a pound of fat. You cut back by three and a half thousand calories. There you go. There's a pound of fat. There are so many reasons why that doesn't work. Do you know happen.
0: what? Do you know what? What you've just demonstrated to me is you're really good at math. <laughs>
1: Well that was my subject.
0: Well you can count everything and everything, it's just amazing. But yeah, you're you you're you're uh you know, an expert in maths and research and you know, you've done nutrition as well. I mean you've got this scientific background. And one of the reasons why it's great having you here is, you know, I'm not gonna say dumb orthopod. One of my listeners wrote <laughs> wrote to me and said, Please don't say that. You wouldn't say that to your son. Even if it's just, you know, you're just saying and I, and I was a bit of a self, kind of like just, you know taking the mick of myself I'm not dumb and people know I'm not dumb yeah but you're you're super smart when it comes to this kind of stuff and I'll be honest with you it's not my area of expertise all you know all the stuff that you're talking about I know a little bit about a lot of things but I don't know a lot about these specific areas which is why it's great having you here but I I've been guilty of this I feel really embarrassed to say I used to say to people well it's really simple to my patients you know what goes in comes out you know you just need to like stop eating so much. And I was like, and they'd be like, I don't eat that much. And I'd be like, yeah, liar <laughs> in my head. Yeah. And I was guilty of that. And I should have known better because just looking in the mirror and looking at my own labs and my blood results, you know, I was type two diabetic and you know, I was exercising. I thought I was really careful with my food, but I wasn't. Um, so, you know, it was clearly, and I used to say this stupid mantra, you know, um. Eat breakfast like a king, lunch like a prince, dinner like a pauper, have your little snacks and all this graze all day like a little cattle, you know, just garbage, garbage that you've been indoctrinated with. And I mean, one of the reasons why I like having guests like you on the show is I'm just so angry. I'm, I'm not angry, angry, like, like ranting angry, but just like really upset with the government and the, our health authorities because the evidence is so obvious that that what they're telling us is not right. So the question is, why are they giving us this terrible information other than profiting large corporations and making us sick? Because I can't believe it's anything other than that. It's it's not a simple case of, oh, we didn't know, and oh, it's just a bit confusing. It's pretty, it's pretty closed door, black and white, like this stuff that they're recommending for us is not good.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I can trace that back. Um, that ended up being my PhD. So my fascination started to be around obesity. And when I was at Cambridge, um, I mean, I don't you can remember one overweight kid in your school. Yeah. Um, and then you get up to, to Cambridge and pretty much still everyone looking around was all slim and healthy, but it was around the time that obesity started taking off. And if you look at the data, you look at the US. And there's just this amazing NHANES. When would you say
0: that? Late 80s, early 90s?
1: Yeah. So in the US, it was, you look at the NHANES chart, and there's a a little bit between 1976 and 1980. And obesity was higher in the US than it was in the UK. It was sort of trundling along at a few percent. Mm. UK obesity was 2.7% in 1972 for both men and women. So ours was really not off the ground. And then theirs just takes off like an aeroplane. It looks like that that inflection on the, on the mic thing there. Mm. And so I wanted to understand what happened then, because for something to change, something must change. So mm. what happened then? And the uh, narrative would have you believe that we started eating more and doing less, and that is just not the case. And in fact, if you look at the evidence, we actually did the opposite. So if you look at our confessed calorie intake over the last 30 to 40 years, it's gone down. Um, and I believe that. I do think people are eating less than than our parents' generation were. And I do think people are doing more. Um, nobody ever cycled past you or jogged past you when you were kicking around on a street corner when you were younger. They just didn't. Nobody was going to the gym. Nobody was going to yoga classes, Pilates, aerobics classes. We just didn't do it. People were doing normal, active lives. They were carrying their own shopping. They were moving around their workplace, Um, and maybe playing a a sport at the weekend. So we have not eaten more and done less. We've done quite the opposite. Mm. So I was really curious to understand what happened at that time. And my hypothesis, and I then tested this in my PhD, was that we changed our dietary guidelines at that time, and we did. So the dietary guidelines first changed over in the US in 1977, they were then embedded in the dietary guidelines for Americans, which first came out in 1980, and then they get repeated every five years. So we're up to the 2025 ones coming in soon. And then the UK followed the US, and so we introduced new dietary guidelines in 1983. And what happened with those dietary guidelines? So I think I think it was honest but wrong at the beginning, but I think it's been conflicted since. So we we'll just quickly cover that off. Mm. So in the beginning, Senator McGovern. He'd been asked to, he, he was a failed presidential candidate and kind of like Al Gore, they then want to make their mark in a different way. So he was doing some research. How could we feed impoverished America because people were not getting the nutrients that they need? So he did that. And then he's like, oh, I quite like this, but I, I, I now want to look at obesity and I want to look at what everybody should be eating, not just people who don't have access to great food. Mm. And he took it upon himself to come up with these dietary guidelines. And he'd just been on a Pritikin boot camp before he held this very important um, Senate inquiry in 1977. So he'd been on a low-fat boot camp and he was probably eating a bit of rubbish before, so he probably felt better. It was probably a Whole Foods, Mm. low-fat, felt better, Mm. and then thought, right, low-fat is the way. And at that time – and. We don't want to go into the history, but you can trace it back to the early 1900s, the work of Russian pathologists, Ansel Keys throughout the 1950s. There was a theory emerging that fat, dietary fat and dietary cholesterol were implicated somehow in heart disease. And they'd only looked at men and it was a really weak association. There was no causation, but they had this idea in their head. Mm. Now, the way I explain it to people, and this was a penny drop moment for me, imagine a, a little pie in front of you, a little circle. There's only three things that we eat, protein, fat, and carbohydrate. Trust me, I can give you the show notes. Protein tends to be about 15 to 20% of any natural diet. Vegetarian, it doesn't matter. It's about 15 to 20%. And they came up with a guideline around 1977 to 1980 to say you should have no more than 30% of your calories in the form of fat. Now picture your little pie. You've got 15% protein. You've now got 30% fat. By definition, you've now got 55% carbohydrate. So that's where the high-carbohydrate, low-fat diet was born. Mm. And at the time, they didn't know that 55% carbohydrate was healthy. They didn't even know that it was safe. But it was just the consequence of having demonized fat. And that's the origin basis of our eat well plate today, the pyramids, all the stuff that's got a mass of carbohydrate on it, hardly any fat, Hardly any animal foods, that's where its roots come from.
0: And that's oh wow. So flawed studies, really weak, poor studies now dictating decades of health advice.
1: Yeah. So so my PhD basically asked the question. It said, okay, that's what happened then. I'm gonna pretend I'm the diet. Sorry, can I
0: just, just check because that study you showed, it was only on two and a half thousand men.
1: Yeah, so yeah, this is what I'm gonna go into now. Yeah. So um, what I showed, I, I, I said, right, I'm going to pretend I'm the Dietary Committee at the time. So mm. I'm going to go back to 1983 in the UK and 1977 in the US. And I'm going to say what evidence was available then. And I'm going to use a technique that they didn't have then because there's a technique called meta-analysis, mm. systematic review, which is when you pull everything together. And that sort of came into our um evidence uh, literature around sort of 1976. So yeah, that you know, they could have been using it, but they didn't. So I said, right, what were all the randomized controlled trials available then when you actually do a dietary intervention? And what were all the population studies then? Because we had things like Framinum and the Sydney Diet Heart study, the Oslo study. We had a few, few of those around at the at the same time. I'm um, sorry, Sydney was an RCT and Oslo was an RCT, but we had things like the Seven Country Study, um, framminum was obviously a big one. So I said, right, what was the evidence available at that time? And if I had pulled it all together then, mm. would it support the introduction of those dietary guidelines? And it didn't. So the first paper went nuts. It was published in 2015 um, for a PhD paper. It was just, it, it went berserk. I mean, it hit Sydney Morning Herald because it basically said we should not have introduced those dietary fat guidelines. So where you got the 2,500 thing from, The pooling of the most important evidence, which was the intervention trials, where they actually said, right, you 100 people go on this diet and you 100 go on this diet and then we'll see what happens. Yeah. Those six trials only involved two and a half thousand people. They were all men. So women had never been studied at the time. Because
0: they're not that important.
1: No, because <laughs> we have, we have hormones and things, so yeah. we get in the way of of trials. And yeah, they never, clearly they never study us. So two and a half thousand men only, and they were all sick; they'd already had a heart attack. So we were not even studying healthy people. Wow. Um, six trials. None of the trials concluded that we should do anything, and in fact, they did the opposite. So the low fat um, trial that was conducted in London. One of the final sentences of the paper says. A low-fat diet has no place in the treatment of myocardial infarction, which is heart attack. And then the Sydney Diet Heart Study um, and I think it was the um, Oslo study, a couple of them said we're really quite concerned about the potential toxicity of our intervention, which was the vegetable oil intervention. So it's like you controls, carry on with your eggs and your butter and and you intervention, let's switch you to um, sort of di- it spread um alternatives to what time frame was this again? 70s? So the the yeah these trials were conducted in the nineteen sixties and nineteen seventies by mm. and large. So the final trial was actually not available. Um it was in 78 the Sydney one was published. So that would have been available to the UK committee coming up with their guidelines, but it wouldn't have been available to the US. So I kind of really looked at timescales and I looked yeah. in detail. Zippo Zilch zero evidence for introducing those guidelines. So in the second part of the PhD, I said, okay, that was 1980. Um, let's bring it up to date. So I was doing my PhD 2015, 2016. So I looked at the evidence available in 2016.
2: Mm.
1: And uh, there was no more then than there was back in 1980. So I looked at any trials that had been done between 1980 up until 2016. And there's things like the um, Women's Health Initiative, huge study of just women. So at last we're getting... Women added into the mix. Um, mm. You've got the Minnesota Coronary Survey. Um, and again, pull all of those in meta analysis. Zero evidence for introducing those guidelines whatsoever.
0: So there's no evidence base. <laughs> I want to move on, but I mean, part of me is just thinking, well, how the hell did they even get it authorized? Like, how, without any evidence, how did they push it ahead and make it? this is science, this is facts, because it's still there, all that garbage, and it's actually got worse. Yeah. I mean, can I just quickly say, you know, you said 15% of the diet is protein. Yeah. What about if you're on on a carnivore diet?
1: It still doesn't go that much higher. To 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 get protein levels anywhere up near 30%, <laughs> let alone 40%, you have got to do some really unnatural things. So you've got to be having skinless chicken breasts, not even the rest of the chicken White fish, no oily fish, protein shakes. You've really got to be doing some pretty unnatural things. Um, Protein is in every single food that we eat, other than sucrose, table sugar, and oils. And it's in everything else. So people are like, oh, you've got to make sure you get enough protein. You've got protein in lettuce, you've got protein in apples. Now, it's not the protein that the body wants. Mm. The body wants the protein that comes in the form that it's found in animals, Mm. but you do get protein in everything. So Unless you're doing something really out of the ordinary. I mean, take, I know Sean Baker has now gone keto rather than carnivore. So he's trying to watch his fat intake, um, but he doesn't cut fat off steak. He's not having... I love the fat. <laughs> and you need to eat the fat.
0: It's really weird. It's really weird. I didn't like the fat before. And this is when I was fat. So when I was fat, I was like, oh, I don't want to eat that. I'd want the bread roll. I'd want the pizza. Yeah. I'd want the, the, the bowl of cereal. I was waking up in the middle of the night with cravings. Yeah. And, 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 you know, almost like in a sleepwalking state, I would find myself eating a bowl of cereal. I'd sometimes wake up in the morning and say, oh, who had that cereal? And my wife was like, <laughs> you, you idiot. At three o'clock, I was having like bowls of sugar basically at three in the morning. But, I, but if I looked at fat on a steak, it repulsed me. I'm not eating that. I don't want to get any, I don't want to get fatter. And, and now I don't crave the sugar, but when I see that fat on a steak or a lamb chop, oh God, I want it. Yeah. Isn't it funny how your body changes?
1: It's got your a dream, hasn't it? Yeah. I mean, fat. It doesn't help because you, you see dietary fat and you think body fat.
0: But it's not the same thing.
1: It, it's not going to make you fat, ironically, of all the macronutrients. That's probably the one. when It, it has no impact on glucose <laughs> and it has no impact on insulin which is quite interesting because protein doesn't impact glucose so much, but it does have an impact on insulin. And of course, carbohydrate has a massive impact on both insulin and glucose. So, so
0: fat doesn't make you fat.
1: It doesn't. I mean, if you eat it with carbohydrate, yes, it does. Um, and and this is, I mean, when you said earlier on, you kind of come at it from a different way. And it's because, um, because I just ask why all the time. I'm such a skeptic. I'm such a natural skeptic, which mm. is why we can get into other things of what's sort of happened over the last three years, but I just don't trust anything. So, um, especially when,
0: not the government,
1: especially not the government. So things like, you know, I'd look at their eat well menus. I, I always put that in inverted commas, you know, the eat well plate. No, of. I know. And, and, and you've well. got,
0: and you've got your own, the big, big, I call bad it plate.
1: The, the eat badly plate and yeah. the eat badly guide. But, I kind of look at food and then when I realized everything I had been told was wrong and Mm. I was actually getting, you know, I myself was craving carbohydrates and podgier, a lot podgier than I am now. And all I wanted to eat was carbohydrate. If somebody said, do you want a salmon steak or do you want a bowl of cereal, bowl of cereal every time. Mm. Um, So I really wanted to understand what food is. So I drew this little diagram. So it's like, okay, at one end you've got Pure carbohydrate, which is table sugar. That's the only one. Mm. And then the other end, you've got pure fat, which is your oils. Coconut oil, olive oil. Um, it's not even butter because butter has got a little bit of protein.
2: Ghee? And
1: then a ghee would... Uh, I don't know, to be honest. it might be tallow? Tallow is... Um, beef dripping? No, it'll probably have protein in as well okay. because it's, it's basically what's left over when you've done a beef joint, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so I think it's just the pure kind of refined oils. I mean, people rave about olive oil, but to me that's still, it's processed olives. What you were supposed to be eating was the olives. So I'm a little bit unsure about all of those. So you've got those at the extremes, but then everything else has got protein in. Um, But then what fascinated me, and I kind of looked at this one day, and this is when I started writing diet books. It's like nature, we should be eating real food, which is Mm. how you opened. Nature fascinatingly provides... Carb proteins or fat proteins, almost all the time. So think about it. So your carb proteins are legumes, grains, vegetables, fruits, things that vegans would eat. Okay, they've got carb and they've got protein in. And then your fat proteins are the things that the vegans don't eat. So that's your meat, fish, eggs and dairy. And then you've got these really unusual foods in the middle. You've got your nuts and seeds and kind of avocado is avocado and nut, whatever. It's in that middle bit where nature has put carb, fat and protein all in quite good measure. And when we eat carb and fat together, we can't stop. And so the only thing that we find more in real food is that carb-fat combo. So if I say to you, right, you can have dry crackers or you can have cheese, you've got a limit mm-hmm. on both of those. The minute I say to you, you can have oat biscuits and cheese together, you've got no limit it just is and as soon as i realized that it's like oh my goodness so the fake food companies have worked that out they've worked out that the fat carb combo is irresistible we want it and it's moreish we want more of it so everything they make is that carb fat combo think about it ice cream cakes cookies donuts and they put students in labs i've seen it i was on the board of cardiff met i've seen their fake food um lab where they pay the students to sit in there and they put through the hatch there's the latest creation. Is it at the bliss point? Give us the mouthfeel. What was the aftertaste? Did you love it? Did you want more of it? Mm. Tweak the recipe. Come back again. I mean, they get it. Just my my son-in-law calls Dunkin' Donuts crack cocaine. You know, he had one and then he wanted another one immediately. So I, I'm not going to have one because I don't I don't want to go down that drug route again. Mm. Um, so they they've worked that out. So I just kind of see food differently to. To how it gets presented by the government and then you look at that eat badly plate and it started off as 55% carbohydrate 30% fat and then they revised the eat badly plate and they made it the eat badly guide in 2016 Um, and, and that's when I discovered the conflicts of interest but they published some recommended menus at the time and then they took them down really quickly but I grabbed them and then I analyzed them and I got somebody else independent to analyze them and we came up with exactly the same thing. They were like 65 to 70% carbohydrate. They were around 15% fat. So then I ran them through a nutrient calculator. They were deficient in everything. They were deficient in all fat soluble vitamins because there just wasn't enough fat. Yeah. They were deficient in your B vitamins, particularly 12. There wasn't enough mm. animal foods, deficient in calcium, deficient in zinc, deficient in vitamin D, deficient in everything that makes us healthy.
0: You know, talking about deficiency, and this is how also I've had this massive paradigm shift and how I look at disease. You know, we are meant to be in a state of ease. And so dis-ease is when you're not. And you, when you go through med school, and you're taught, you know, the traditional Western medicine, it's there's something fundamentally wrong with you. There's a, a genetic thing going on. There's a family history going on. Or quite often, we don't know. It's idiopathic. We don't know why you've got this problem. It just is. Don't ask why. Here's a tablet. And the tablets are quite often blockers. They block your normal metabolic pathway, your hormonal pathway, your enzyme pathway, whatever it might be. And, and, and when you think about it, that's really a, an upside down way of looking at things, blocking your normal physiological pathway. But it's that, it's that mentality that there's something wrong um with you and your body and so we need to block it and so whether you know beta blockers um ssris statins statins, you know whatever you want to look at it's always blocking proton pump inhibitors you know but the way i look at it so much of disease is actually about deficiency and all those things that you just mentioned like magnesium methylfolate vitamin d zinc You know, so what we're doing is we're getting lots of people eating lots and consuming lots of food, which are really fundamentally nutritionally depleted. And that's then what causes the problems we're seeing with leaky guts, with, you know, autoimmune conditions or mental health problems or whatever it might be. It's the deficiency. And where does that come from? Poor food. Bad dietary advice. So am I right in thinking also that i read somewhere that, Basically, the American big food industry, which is related very closely to Big Agra, which depletes the soil and, you know, rapes the, the land of nutrients. Um, they, they, they fund and pay like the American Diet oh, yeah, Association. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about billions of dollars. Yeah. Am I right about that? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, I remember doing a presentation over in the US a couple of years ago and talking about the American Dietetic Association conflicts. That's it. Um, Australian Dietetic Association, the same. The British, the British ones I find particularly heinous, the British Dietetic Association. and what because way? Because they're um, focused on um, infant formula. So their gold sponsors are companies like <sighs> Abbott Nutrition, Danone. Um, I can't remember the other infant formula. So the dietitians are getting into mums um, as soon as they've had the baby. And then apparently they show them charts saying, oh, look, um, your baby should be at the 90th percentile. Well, you know, back to maths, you can't all be at the 90th percentile. The whole point of the 90th percentile is you're above 90% of other people. So they show mums the 90th percentile and they say, well, that's where your baby should be. And then the mums panic, particularly the first um, mums to the firstborns. They're like, oh, gosh, what should I be doing? Oh, well, they're obviously not getting enough breast milk. So I think you should be switching to infant formula. An infant formula is basically baby milkshake. Um, it's got soy in it, which is a hormone disruptor. Um, it's got sugar in it, which is something that's going to make you addicted to sugar. Um, so if you take a, um, a toddler that's been breastfed and then um, I know real food parents. Um, I've got one in my head at the moment, a guy called Sam Feltham. He runs the Public Health Collaboration in the UK. Um, and I can think of his his two little ones. And breastfed as long as they possibly can be and then when you start mixing the breast milk with the baby food basically you just take what you're having for dinner which might be lamb and vegetables mm. and you mince it up you puree it up and you give it to the baby so the baby's um, then getting real food and you um, give that child something sweet when they're a toddler and they're just not interested because their taste buds have been formed correctly But you then compare that with the toddler at the nursery who's had the infant formula and got addicted to the baby milkshakes.
0: 100%. You know, I I was telling my wife this other day and she was like, 100%. You know, so I do a lot of the childcare, even more now (laughs) since I've been suspended. (laughs) But, you know, um, know, like normally like three days of the week, I get up and I do, you know, breakfast, pack lunch, drop them off at school, pick them up. And when I'm at pick up, it blows my mind. Every parent almost, I mean, not everyone, but almost, I mean, the vast majority handing their kids these carbohydrate snacks, yeah. chocolate bars, Rice Krispie bars, whatever they are, you know, like just some kind of fast food processed sugary thing. And it's like the first thing. And the and kids, I'm telling you right now, you know, we're in a quite affluent area. You know, it's it's a nice place. You know, the parents aren't, you know, they're middle class, they're educated. But they're giving all the kids these artificial food substances, and the kids are wild and they're crazy and they're on the floor yelling, screaming, and and I just think, what the hell has happened to society? This isn't right. And then I hear also quite often, okay, do you guys want to go for a treat to McDonald's? A treat, yeah. Like a, that's a, like when you know fast food to me is poison. Mm. When do you offer your kids poison as a treat? That's the way I look at
1: it. Do you give your kids packed lunches or anything? Yeah. Yeah. So we've had some real food parents say, I sent my child off to school and in the lunchbox, I put, I don't know, boiled eggs and cheese, um, some cucumber slices, pepper strips, um, real food majoring on the things that provide nutrients. And they sometimes get a little note back from the school saying, where was the starchy carbohydrate? You know, at least half the box should be starch.
0: Wow. Yeah.
1: And they write notes back saying, um, you know, if you want to have a debate about nutrition, I'll come into the school. But if not, leave my child the hell alone.
0: Wow.
2: Um,
1: No, I mean,
0: thankfully, our kids actually even said, you know, um, we did get them on um, school dinners purely because our friends are having school dinners and they want to sit next to their friends. And literally like a week later, they're like, can we have pack lunch again? <laughs> Food's disgusting. Yeah. And my sister, um, and my my daughter, you know, she was on like four or five, like reception and everything, you know, really quite young. And the way she turned up her nose at it, she was like, daddy, I don't want to eat that. It's disgusting. And yeah. <laughs> I was like, good. She knows. Yeah.
1: So, like, I turn what we should eat on its head. So... The the government, you kind of know now why we ended up with the high-carb, low-fat advice because they demonised fat. They thought they were going to do the right thing by heart disease. They were really only caring about heart disease in men. So um, lots of wrong reasons, but that's why they ended up demonising fat. And I think where we are at the moment, I think the conflicts have come in since. Mm. So um, I think it very much suited the fake food industry at the time when they realised that Senator McGovern was going the low-fat route and he had a vegetarian, um, Nick Motton, who was writing up the report from the Senate committee. Um, so they had sort of integral biases even at that time. But I mean, imagine the fake food industry. Whoa, guys, they're going to come out recommending cereal for breakfast instead of eggs and mm. sandwiches for lunch instead of um, you know tuna salad or something like this. This is, this is manna from heaven. So the fake food companies were then very happy. They were involved at the time. But since <coughs> they have become more and more embedded in our dietary advice. So when the eat Badly plate became the Badly guide, and there's a little funny story just here. So why did that change? There was a, so my paper had come out in 2015 saying the low fat advice was completely wrong. Mm. And it was picked up by a lot of news programs at the time. And then Radio 4 program, like the Today Food program kind of thing, wanted to do a feature on it. So they did a feature. They interviewed me. I think Asim Malhotra was on there as well. And we were all saying this high sugar, low fat is just really terrible. And they had Alison Tedstone on, who was the head of nutrition for Public Health England. And the presenter was called Adrian. And I'm trying to remember his surname. But anyway, you can look it up. And um, he said to her, why is there Coca-Cola on the plate? And she said, no, there isn't. He said, yes, there is. (laughs) And you just kind of got the impression that she went back to the office and she's like, why is there (laughs) Coca-Cola on my plate? And she had no idea. And I think she then just put together some people and said, right, whatever happens, it's now going to be called a guide, not the Eat Badly plate, but that Coca-Cola needs to go. So she then appointed, so she's head of public health. health Is it
0: Eat Well guide or Eat Badly? I
1: call it Eat bad. I can't call it Eat Well because it's just not. I
0: know, but just for the listeners to know.
1: they, They used to call it the Eat Well plate. They then changed it to the Eat Well guide in March 2016.
0: But it's Aurelian yeah. because it's actually eat bad.
1: It is so bad, yeah. yeah. So, right, at the time I, I I wanted to look at, well, who, who did this? Who put this together? Because I'd been following this plate for quite some time. So I'd written a book on obesity in 2009. And back then, the plate was the responsibility of the Food Standards Agency. So there was this visual plate, and I'd actually written to the Food Standards Agency, being this annoying, you know, four-year-old again, that's saying – Where do you get those proportions from? What are you trying to achieve with this? Because like a third of the plate is fruit and vegetables and a third of the plate is starchy foods and you've got 15% that is quite frankly junk um, with Coca-Cola. What's going on here? And they said, oh, it's, it's kind of by visuals, but actually that ends up being by weight. Um, God, there's so much to cover in there because the problem, I then analyzed it and said, well, the problem with saying you want a third of your plate by weight when it's fruit and veg is that ends up being 6% of your calories
2: Yeah, because
1: they're really low-cal relative to everything else. And if you want a third of your plate in starchy foods, that ends up being 50% of your calories. So I was already saying to them, you don't know what you're doing. This is all going a bit wrong. So they came up with this new guide in 2016. So I wanted to look at who's been in charge of it now. It's not the FSA anymore. Who's in charge? So Public Health England, I found out, had appointed a panel to revise the plate. And there were 11 members on the panel. And eight of them were basically the fake food industry. Wow. And when I say the fake food industry, I don't mean Coca-Cola. I mean the Institute for Grocery Distribution. So they represent 100, let's say, fake food organizations. Or the Association for Convenience Stores. Or the Food and Drink Federation. Think of any food and drink company from Starbucks to Nabisco to General Mills, Kellogg's, whatever. They were being represented by these organisations. There was also the British Nutrition Foundation, which is the who's who of the fake food industry. Don't be fooled by the name.
0: So when we're talking about fake food, just to clarify, just to clarify, we're not talking about like the fake burger thing. We're talking about everything that's just processed, everything ultra processed. So, for example, one of the things I, I just find horrific is you go to a corner shop or a convenience store or, or, you know, petrol station, gas station, and you walk through the aisles, 99% of it is just garbage. Yeah. And, and <clears throat> it's all in bright packaging to allure the kids, yeah. shiny, shiny packaging. Um, and it's all, it's all, it's really funny. Whatever it is that you see, whether it's chocolates or crisps, it's the same ingredients, just in different combinations and processing. But the essential thing is sugar, refined sugar, seed oils. Flour. Flour. Yeah. And that's it. Yeah. And they just mix it up. Like it's quite clever, actually, that you yeah. can make things that look very different superficially or are essentially the same same it's, ingredients. And, and, and there's no whole foods. I mean, you're lucky if you go into a gas station and you see some nuts, you know, like whole nuts or pistachios or cashew nuts. But it's all processed food. And these people are the ones who are pushing the guides and telling you know, the government what to do. And the government must know this.
1: They're not stupid. Two two quick things. Honestly, we could talk for five hours. You remind me so many things from my past. So, um, first of all, one of the reps out of these eleven reps was the Association for Convenience Stores. Mm. So exactly what you've just described. There's nothing healthy in a a convenience store. So they're not going to be on that committee saying, "Oh, I think we should really major on meat and fish and eggs and dairy because they're the nutritious foods." They're going to say, "Great, all the stuff that we're putting on this this plate." And they did take the Coca Cola off the plate, but they. Put this sort of junk segment to the bottom left of the diagram. So, if you look at the diagram over in the bottom left, which is where your eye is drawn to, they've got the crisps and and the other junk and all that kind of thing. So, so they're represented. And then the second thing you've reminded me of is I used to work for Mars Confectionery.
0: Whoa! So I, I've had <laughs> it's coming out now. It's coming out confession time.
1: Confession time. I have in the past worked for Big Food, and I have in the and? past worked for Big Pharma. Um, not many people know Mars actually had an electronics division and that's where I started out. So you probably don't remember. I know I never used vending machines, but when you used to put your money in a vending machine, the product didn't used to come out. So
0: bang, bang. Yeah. Mars said,
1: <laughs> we want to sell chocolate 24 seven. So we're going to need to invent a good um, vending machine. So they set up a division of Mars because Mars was just a company of very bright people. Set up a division, saying, "Get me a, a machine that will work. You put your money in, and your product comes out." And that's how Mars Electronics came about. So I joined the electronics division. Uh, Mars, by the way, is the best company on the world in the world to work for. Just magnificent, but the products leave a little to be desired. Then I moved over <laughs> to Mars Confectionery. And Mars move you around. So I started off in manufacturing, then I was in training, then I was in marketing, then I moved to confectionery, I ended up in sales. And um, here's where I learned what you've just described when you go into the gas station. So seven out of 10 confectionery purchases are impulse. Seven out of 10 times, you walk into the petrol station, you did not intend to buy anything. In fact, you said to yourself in the car, I am not getting anything. Yeah. And you walk out with a, Double decker or hopefully Mars would want you to walk out with a Mars bar, and I was responsible in my first job at Mars Confectionery, I was responsible for sales
0: merchandising, so you really did work for the devil <laughs> Genies I, Louise, how did I miss this one? I missed this one i didn't I didn't know this
1: um yeah, it's quite funny, but then you do. It's like the reform smoker, isn't it? You've you've seen it from the inside. Mm. So we had all these merchandisers, and my my training, my induction was to go out with these merchandisers, and I loved the, and they were always women, and I loved them. They were just the nicest, funniest women in the world because their job is basically to walk into a cinema, or into the petrol station, or into the newsagent, and to charm the assistant, the, the keeper, the manager, the shopkeeper, um, to put the Mars products. Where we wanted them, because it was such a science that when you look at that brown rack in the petrol station, Mars and Cadbury were doing the same thing, and Roundtree was there at that time. They were doing the same thing. We were all working out where your eyes went on the brown rack. So next time you're in there, just have a look and see where your eyes go, because we knew where your eyes were going. So, wow, we
0: we would kind of sinister.
1: It was uh, it was not left a chance. It was not by chance that you walked out of that petrol station with something in your hand that you did not intend to buy, that was not good for you, that you just wasted fifty p on or whatever it was at the time. Um, and we knew we couldn't just go to the shopkeeper and say, "Oh, look, you've got to only have Mars on there." So we want Mars, and we want Snickers, and we want M and M's, and teasers and Opal Fruits. Yeah,
0: and- drug reps are, were the same. I remember, yeah. like in the nineties, in the medical student going in the ward and going to the meetings, we'd have audit meetings and morbidity and mortality or whatever. It was always sponsored by a drug company. It'd always be a very attractive sales rep. Yeah, yeah. You know, very pretty, very yeah, charming, yeah. flirtish, totally. flirt, you know, flirting with you.
2: Yeah.
0: And um, yeah, and you felt very special. And yeah. would you like a pen? Yeah. Would you- <laughs> All this kind of stuff. Yeah. And it's like, you know, even at the time I was like, this is well dodged. This is, oh, do you know, this is so dodgy.
1: So, I went from I was headhunted hunted by SmithKline Beecham as it was at the time just before the Glaxo takeover. Um, sorry, merger. Ha oh, oh, lols. Um, and I was I then went into HRs in the consumer healthcare business mm. um within SmithKline Beecham. So we were looking after products like Daynurse, Nightnurse, Resolve, the hangover remedy, Toothpaste, that kind of thing. But obviously, the farmer was the really big part of the Glaxo, the, the GSK business. And so we had just the same as the merchandising reps trying to sort out the confectionery bars. We had the drug reps who are exactly the people that you've just described, the ones going in to charm the, the doctors, the pharmacists, whoever's going to prescribe the product, they want it to be their product. Now
0: he's a really interesting That thing. bald that bald gastroenterologist with a with a comb over yep. suddenly feels very special. Yeah. With this young girl in her early twenties flirting with flirting him.
1: With and, they, and,
0: they and, and they loved it. That yeah. these these old guys. Yes. I'm telling you right now, I used to watch them and be like, man, this is like disgusting. <laughs> was like this is disgusting.
1: it was, but do you know what they don't have to do that anymore, and I'll tell you why they don't have to
0: do that. Oh, anymore. it's nice guidelines nice guidelines hundred percent got it no listen because I, I watched it i watched i mean I'm not gonna like part me missy seeing these young attractive women. I'm joking like um so i I've witnessed it as a medical student, I've witnessed it, all these girls coming in, you know, flirting with all these old guys and 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 you know, and then suddenly you're seeing that the drug that was at that meeting is now being prescribed. Sounds you've got crazy. the low sec pen, you've got the low sec um, pen torch, you've got the whatever it is, you know, and then suddenly as the years went by, you know, they disappeared. Yeah. But now it's all nice guidelines. One of the things I'm, I'm always going on about is like centralization is evil and yeah. totalitarianism is evil and it, and it comes in many shapes and forms and it's not just governmental. And one of the things with healthcare is this, idea that me as a clinician can treat my patient the way I want to you differently to that patient has gone out the window because now you've got these guidelines which are anything but guidelines oh my god I didn't turn my phone off that's so bad so basically um, they're diktats and the problem is like you've just said these um these guidelines are being generated by few individuals that can be manipulated coerced bought out have conflicts of interest and that that's what's happened
1: that is one hundred percent. We we have to spell it out for people listening because it came in in nineteen ninety nine. It was under Tony Blair's watch. So he was in from 1997 to two thousand and seven, mm. and it basically centralised everything. And then I've done a number of uh, conflicts of interest is one of my other things that I'm fascinated by because um, if something happens that shouldn't happen, there's only two reasons that that happens. One, it's incompetence, and two, it's 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 malice, it's conflict. Yeah, and increasingly in the field of food and farmer, it's it's conflict. So. Um, You don't even have to get to those people anymore on the NICE guidelines. If you go, and I've done this, and the Sunday Times have covered it a couple of times, they're not even interested anymore. It's like, yeah, well, that's how it is. That's how it is. So you'll have probably, again, about 10 to 15, maybe 11 or 14 reps on any of the NICE setting guidelines, and you go and look at their conflicts of interest. So I, I happened to, I think it's an observer article. I looked at some conflicts of interest that had come out in some bariatric surgery recommendations and went through the panel and it's bariatric surgeon, bariatric surgeon, bariatric surgeon, bariatric surgeon. Um,
0: It was… Unbelievable.
1: And they justify it by saying, oh, well, we're discussing bariatric surgery, so we should have bariatric surgeons on the panel. We're discussing blood pressure, so we should have makers of blood pressure medication on the panel. It's like no… How about you put together a panel that's got me and you and Claire Craig and Norman Fenton and Jonathan Engler or something and just people who can look independently at evidence who are not being paid.
0: So so I'll come to, listen, I just want to quickly say something. I've got this line that I really want to get out. I was going to say, when you were talking about convenience stores, when we were talking, convenience stores are not convenient to your health, right? They're inconvenient to your health. So guys and girls listening, you know, just just stay away from that shit. Yeah. Just, for God's sake, stop looking at it as crack cocaine <laughs> and start start looking at it as literally poison. It's poisoning you. It's killing you early. It's going to make you dribble in that care home and get dementia. So just stay away from that shit. Anyway, moving back, you know, conflicts of interest. For, it's in every facet of our world yeah. and it's freaking me out. And this is why I talk about everything. This is why I say everything's related. Take, for example, our GMC, you'll have people there who are on the vaccine panels and they're interested in vaccines. There are vice chairs or chairs of the vaccine, you know, commissions, whatever. So say, for example, if I question vaccine safety and then my fellow doctors say he's an anti-vaxxer and blah, 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 and report me to the GMC. And then on the GMC, you've got people who have a vested interest in vaccines because that's what they do. That's their job. What do you think they're going to do? Do you think they're going to independently look at me and go, mm, well, he's got a point. Yeah. Or are they going to go, goddamn, the anti vax <laughs> and, and we've got these conflicts of interest everywhere, Zoe. And, the, and I will say corruption here in the West is so sophisticated, so sublime. Like everybody thinks, oh, you know, the corrupt countries are like Nigeria or Pakistan or whatever. Because you know what? You go there and they want this envelope of cash or there's a gun pointed at you saying, give me this. And sure, yeah, there's corruption there and scams there. But I think we in the West have fine-tuned the level of scams and you know, corruption to such a high level. It's, you know The corruption is you know, promotion. The bribes are promotions. Um, they're appointments. You, you, you bribe by appointments. So you, know, you get on all these directorships or chairman of this or whatever. And, and we need to sort out this corruption, this conflict of interest, because it's, it's going to ruin us.
1: I quite like those countries because I think they're honest about it (laughs) and we're not. So I remember I went, yes, I went to speak at a conference in Saudi Arabia a few years ago, which was an experience and the flight was canceled that we were supposed to go back through. So we had to drive into bahrain to try and get a flight back from there and we got to the border and because i didn't have a visa for bahrain it's like i'm just trying to get to your airport i should have been flying to your airport but yeah um and we kind of got to the to the um checkout or the border control or whatever and they clearly didn't want to let us through and it's like i so want to get home i just you know this country is yeah is not great for women (laughs) um and and we just gave the guy on the border control a shed load of dollars amazing it's like okay fair enough if that's what it takes i just want to get home you know how much do you want Um, But it's just so much more honest. I mean, I think people have been woken up. The
0: dishonesty is honest. (laughs) It's
1: true. That's I like that. But people have woken up to it in COVID. It's like, you know, Matt Hancock got all of his mates supplying PPE and gave them all loads of contracts. And everyone's like, oh, that's outrageous. It's like, I think that's been going on quite a long time, but perhaps. We didn't spot it.
2: So I
0: mean, we need to go back to the food stuff. But you remind me of like like so many people I know. I'm not going to name names, but so many who who just go like, "I hate the government, hate the Tories." You know, the Tories they're killing they're killing old people with you know the the heating and the bills and you know people are, are not able to warm their homes and you know, the the government is terrible. They're they're evil. And then COVID comes along. Oh, the government tells us to do this. We need yeah. to do this. I'm like, hold on one second. All your life you've just criticised the government and the Tories. Yeah, but they wouldn't do this to us. You know, like, seriously, like, yeah. I don't get that. I don't, I don't get how people can't see through the bullshit.
1: I was totally with you. It's like you hate Boris Johnson and you're yeah. doing exactly what he's telling you right? to
0: do. Like you've he- just bad-mouthed him forever and what a buffoon he is. But then you take on board his advice. Yeah. Like it's the most important thing ever. It's I like, know.
1: So before we go back to food, we, we do need to cover up a, a couple of conflicts. Of course, being interested in conflicts and not buying
0: oh can you see my thing. cap by the way what, is, what does my cap say uncaptured
1: oh yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> I'm uncaptured which is why many people hate me but many people love me
1: yeah
0: I ain't no shill be, be, be your own thing so I I got
1: sort of known to some people who, um, were, I mean, you found your tribe, didn't you? We all found our tribe during lockdown. And it's a good one.
0: It's a good one.
1: Speak your truth and you'll find your tribe. And my, my truth was, I'm just not buying this. This just does not make sense. Right from the beginning, my very first blog, if you go on my site, there's a blog from March 2020. And I'm saying, okay, guys, what's a coronavirus? How many have we had? Um, let's look at the early data. I don't think we need to be rushing out buying toilet rolls. (laughs) I think we're kind of overreacting a bit. But anyway, the two big conflicts of interest that I looked at, the first one was the SAGE committee, which was the scientific advisory group on
0: emergencies. Oh, by way, I just forgot to tell Andy, this is the listeners are going to love this. You talked about toilet paper. I forgot to say, our toilet seat's broken.
1: <laughs> I think he'll work it out.
0: I hope he doesn't end up on the floor. <laughs>
1: We've left my husband in the house with two cats who are just going to actually they're just going to sit on him and then he's not going to be able to move. Is,
0: I just need to tell you my little my little my middle daughter swivels on the toilet seat and she keeps breaking it and it's got to the point now where I cannot be bothered fixing it. I'm like just stop swiveling on the it, toilet he'll seat. He'll
1: work it out. Okay. He's an engineer. He'll okay. be fine it'll be fine trust me
0: all right, sorry for that
1: right, so SAGE so um, SAGE scientific Scientific advisory group on emergencies and they had loads of people who were turning up so what I did and this was really um, methodical but I went through all of their meetings and they were publishing the meeting minutes so I'd go through every, all the meeting minutes and I built a little spreadsheet so I'd look at who was at each of the meeting minutes and the, the same names keep coming up again and again so it's Neil Ferguson um, Patrick Valance, Chris Whitty All the usual suspects on the telly, John Edmonds, um, who's been speaking to the inquiry recently. um, And there were about 20 people that just were coming up again and again and again, and they were clearly the ones who were having an influence. So you might have been invited to one meeting and then you didn't appear again. So you clearly weren't a key influencer. So I then looked at the conflicts of interest for the key influencers, and I looked at the functions of the key influencers. And 12 out of 20 of those key influencers had conflicts with COVID vaccines. Um, and I did that in inverted commas. Um, Please tell me. So they had, they, they, they had an interest in, in basically locking us down until there was a vaccine. So, you know, if you remember, we were told three weeks to flatten the curve. Um, and, and people still think that was three weeks to save lives. Can you give me examples? Who yeah, so, I mean, and
0: what is a conflict of interest?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I brought the table along with me. Actually. I want to hear this. I remember Einstein saying, um, have nothing in your head that you can look up. Um, I, I treat my head like a desktop. So when I'm working on the Monday note, I put the things I need for that Monday note on the desktop. And then when I move on to the next Monday note, I take it off the desktop. got gotcha, so, you're very organized. So for an, for a meeting like this, there's certain things I want to have on the desktop. And then you're putting other things on there, like I used to work for Mars and SmithKline Beach. And so it's all coming in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But some of the sage conflicts of interest. So, I mean, um, Neil, uh, Patrick Valance personal vaccine conflict, which was highlighted by The Telegraph at one point, 600,000 shareholding in a pharmaceutical um, company. Neil Ferguson, who, of course, was probably single-handedly the person who managed to get us into lockdown. March 2020, when Boris was going to go the Sweden route and Neil was like, no, 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 we must lock down, otherwise we're we'll going Report all go number
0: die. nine or something?
1: Yeah, exactly. And oh, what a what a coincidence. Imperial College, in the month that he published that report, got $70 million from the Gates Foundation. And, Gates?
0: And he's got the audacity to say it, it was nothing to do with me and yeah. I wasn't recommending it. Yeah. You wrote this paper that wasn't peer-reviewed, yeah. wasn't scientific, yeah. wasn't referenced or anything. Like there was nothing, it was a report. Yeah. And that was used to justify lockdowns across the world.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah. If and he, you could get the UK to go, US would follow and other countries would follow. So the UK was the critical one, which so is why...
0: What was, yeah, what was his conflict of interest? So it's, he worked for yeah, Imperial... So
1: he's, he's at Imperial College who were actually directly in the vaccine race. They were also um, taking part in various vaccine trials. And of course, um, he received so much money from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation um, yeah,
0: massive grants.
1: Massive grants. Chris Whitty, his um, connection was with the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, they'd received forty-six million dollars from the Gates Foundation, um, and they were also looking into vaccine research at the time. Because if you remember, they said, and, and this is important to remind people of, it's just three weeks to flatten the curve, and that wasn't to save any. The only lives that they thought might be saved by that was we just can't overwhelm the NHS, so we just can't have too many people. Turning up at once, so you, you're still all going to get COVID. Was probably what they were thinking. Mm. But we just don't want 60 million people to get COVID all at once because yeah. we're not going to be able to cope within the NHS. So that was the whole idea of the lockdown. And then, of course, they it was never intended. You can look at some of the Sage minutes, and you can see that it was never intended to be three weeks. They knew that it was going to be a few months. They just went quiet at the end of the three weeks. They didn't then say anything. It was just like, oh, they won't realise the three weeks was up. That's the point where I was having chickens. You know, it's like, what the, is going on?
0: What the frack?
1: Why are we? Come on, say what the up? frack, my tagline. What the frack? Yeah. <laughs> what the frack? Why are they not letting us out? One more time. <laughs> what the frack? I was getting really concerned. And then it started to become clear. By May 20, it was clear. They plan to keep us in lockdown until they've got a vaccine to get us out so The next,
0: so next conflicts of interest?
1: The next conflicts of interest. Graham Medley was also at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine Vaccine Centre. So was John Edmonds. He also had declared conflicts that his partner worked for GSK. Um, Jonathan Van Tam. I mean, these are people off the telly, aren't they? Um, worked in the pharmaceutical and vaccines industries from 2000. He'd been with Smith Klein Beecham. Hasn't he been given an appointment somewhere? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, he's gone to Moderna. So he recommends vaccines to the whole nation. Other countries do follow the UK. They do follow the lead of the US and the UK. So his his influence was global. He ends up at Moderna. Um, James Rubin was a nice one. He was. Um, do you remember that paper? It's in Laura um, Bear realities. Laura Dodsworth, brilliant book, State of Fear. So there was a quote in an academic paper where it said the public are not scared enough. We need to up the level of fear because it's only with fear comes compliance. Um, And James Rubin was one of the main players on the SAGE committee and he was one of the co-authors of that paper. So one of my other observations about these key 20 influencers were there were four times as many modelers and behavioral manipulators as there were immunologists and there were no virologists whatsoever. On the whole committee so you just staffed it with the wrong people you've staffed it with people doing modeling and manipulating people
0: it makes me listen can i be honest with you i was speaking to um red pill f- um pharmacist It's Graham atkinson um this morning well i was sending him voice notes i was really upset going back to dropping off the kids at school you know i i have a little bit of ptsd i was walking through I was remembering when we had to social distance, mask, kids, you know, were being masked, teachers masked, kids being told to stay at home, homeschooling. And I'm like, I'm still angry about that. I'm not, I'm not over it, Zoe. Yeah,
1: I'm, I'm with you.
0: Okay. And it, it makes me really pissed off. And some people might be listening, oh, don't get angry. That's not really useful. Yeah, whatever. Shut up. No. <laughs> I am angry. Okay. And I look around me and I think, how many people, how many parents feel like me? Because I don't think many do. They're just getting on with their life like nothing happened. And it's like, why? Why are enough people not upset at this, what they did to us? Because the damage is still ongoing, it hasn't gone away. The children. Are really delayed in their learning. They're suffering from anxiety. Their mental health crisis has gone through the roof. You know, th- this is a this is a problem that's going to last a generation. It's not. It wasn't just in the past. People would think, "Oh, um, why do not you just get over it?" Like you know, it was. It's now twenty twenty three. No, we're going to suffer this, and we are. The the cost of living is not big bad Putin. Cost of living is cost of furlough and cost cost of COVID. Everything we are going through now and the next 20 years will have been because of the bullshit that happened to us. Sorry, I'm just, I just want to get that off my chest.
1: Totally with you. And, I could have said exactly that.
0: Yeah, and I just don't want to, I, just don't, I don't feel like I want to close the chapter on that. I'm going to keep scratching that scab and keep the wound raw because I think people need to bloody hear this.
1: I think we do need to keep it raw and scratch it because if we don't, we're going to do it again. Amen. And we know that they're working on the international health regulations at the World Health Organization. And we know that the minute they get those through, which could be May 24, they will create another pandemic. They're telling us already there'll be another one. Well, how come? We didn't have one for 100 years. Yeah. And then suddenly we're going to have one in a year's time. Uh, That's a little bit suspicious, guys.
0: Right. No, but for most people out there, they seem to think, "Mm, okay, government told me I don't like bars, but, you know. Rishi Sunak, whatever they say. I mean, so you've got an unelected prime minister who's now appointed an unelected foreign minister who's not even an MP. I mean, you can make this up. It's an absolute <laughs> joke. But, you know, going back to, you know, COVID and everything, you know, I am worried about it. You know, you'd mentioned the, the WHO. Tedros was up talking about, you know, oh, the European Union had this great digital passport. We've now taken it over and there'll be a world digital vaccine passport. Everyone listening. If that doesn't scare the hijabis out of you, I mean, you should all be saying what the frack. Yeah. So to travel, you need a digital vaccine passport. You need to show you're up to date. So, just to clarify, yeah, you know, all those doctors listening, because I know that. By, by the way, do you know people are listening, um, and spying on me and reporting on what I do and say and tweet. This is this is the state of the world that we live in. Um, so all those people. Yeah, you know what, I'm, I hate the vaccines. I'd love to bring the whole industry down because I think it's a sham and a fraud, um, especially these vaccine mRNA technology, which is complete fraud um, and dangerous and toxic. Um, I'm really worried because, you know, if they're going to say, now you need this digital passport to travel, I'm afraid that a lot of people are going to do exactly what they did in the, in the COVID years. Oh, we need to go on holiday. Everybody, come on, kids, get jabbed up. Mm-hmm. Um, and people need to say, no, yeah. we're not going to go along with this it's kind of scary which is why we need to talk about this kind of stuff but anyway we need to move back to
1: I think I think a lot more people will say no next time so the way I look at it is look at how many people had jab one and fewer people had jab two and fewer again had jab three and fewer again have had jab six and that for me is the starting point at the next time So I know they'll up the level of fear and I know they'll um, make all these kind of lies again and they'll say, oh, yeah, there were some problems with the last one.
0: But you know what? This isn't good enough for me. I mean, Zoe, I, I don't think it's right that people who did this, people like the stage panel who have got conflicts of interest, get away with it, get promotions, gongs, knighthoods, literally, and people who speak out and question it get punished and demonized and ridiculed, suspended, yeah. sacked, you know, struck off.
1: Completely the wrong way around, isn't it? You should be the one getting knighted and mm. Van Tam or some of these guys should be the ones being uh, being struck off. I mean, just look specifically at the vaccine conflict. So I did the same that I did for SAGE. I looked at the JCVI. Yes, please. The Joint Committee on Vaccine Immunization. Um, and I found out that the organizations that that panel worked for, and that's much more a fixed panel. It's not You go through all the meeting minutes and you find the top 20. Collectively, they worked for organisations that had received a billion dollars from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And they were ruling on children
0: getting vaccines in the UK. Can you tell me any names of the people that are on the panel? I think there's someone called Andrew Pollard. I don't know if I bought that one along. Actually, Oh, I did.
1: Um, Did I? That would be good, wouldn't it? JCB Conflicts of Interest. So the chair was Professor Lim Wee-Chen. You've got Anthony Harden, Kevin Brown, Rebecca Caudry, Maggie Weirmouth, uh, Matt Keelin, Alison Lawrence, Robert Reed. Most of these people are just not known, are they? No. Anthony Scott, Adam Finn, Fiona van der Klees, Martin Potma, Simon Kroll, Martin Williams, Professor Jeremy Brown. And they're just not that well known. Um, but if you go on my website and you put in JVCI. Is that the right way I know? JCVI, Joint Committee on Vaccines and Immunizations. You'll see a number of those characters and you'll see their individual conflicts of interest. And a lot of them, they're, they're required to report conflicts of interest when they're on a government committee. And you'll see when you go through some of those details, you'll see that I document reported no conflicts of interest, but then they've got some direct connection to Pfizer. It's like, how is that not a conflict of interest?
0: Exactly. Yeah. Right. I mean,
1: what what cuckoo land are you living in?
0: So you just mentioned Anthony Harndon. Harndon, he's he's a he up he's a member of the GM, GMC.
1: Okay. General
0: practitioner, professor of primary care at Nuffield. Is currently the deputy chairman of the Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunisation, which advises the UK government on vaccine policy. There you go. Formerly national clinical champion for child health um inaugural inaugural chairman of the who global network of national immunization and technical advisory groups
1: holy moly
0: right so all of these people are in they're all in the club and we ain't in it yeah it's as simple as that isn't it
1: and and the average person has just got to realize that and say okay i can't trust these guys anymore whether it's boris or rishi or kia They're all in the big boys clubs. Keir Starmer's one of the forerunners of the Trilateral Commission in Europe. Rishi and David Cameron and all the rest of them are all on the World Economic Forum website.
0: Can I just say, let's go back a bit, right? To me, it makes sense that if you're going to have a committee that's going to decide on whether you should have vaccinations or not, they should be made up of people who are not involved in the industry and who will gain from the decision-making. So, for example, if you are promoting if you're on this board say you're on this board of vaccination you're not going to be on that board if you're saying people shouldn't be vaccinated
2: yeah
0: you're only going to be on that board if you're telling everyone you need to get this vaccine yeah. i mean no one's going to be appointed if it, if they're going to go against it, it just doesn't make sense yeah. right it just doesn't it's like saying you're the board of dog you know the dog association and you're telling everyone to have cats <laughs> No, no, you know, it's just not going to happen. Yeah. So these people have conflicts of interest. Yeah. They're going to recommend vaccines. So how can they be on a committee deciding whether to appoint, you know, authorize vaccines or have children vaccinated or not? Because they're naturally always going to say yes. Yeah. That's the only way they're going to look at things. Yeah. Their livelihoods, their careers, their promotions, their financial interests are all dependent on one answer, yeah. one one decision. So my take on it is on these so important committees, you should have people who have got nothing to do with vaccines. Yeah. Now, some people might argue, well, you need to be an expert in the area to make that decision. Not really. I think what you need to be is an intelligent person yeah. who can weigh up information, the pros and the cons, and and, and ask the relevant people to provide the evidence. Yeah. And then and then decide on the outcome and and make a decision and and they are not influenced in any way whether the decision is yes or no it doesn't make any difference to them their job will be secure they are not going to be promoted depending on what decision you make to go that's that's what it should look like
2: yeah
1: so I don't know if you're familiar with the paper that Dr Peter Doshi did so he was an assistant editor of the BMJ.
0: I've heard his name and, I've, and yeah. I've seen him do a few things. Yeah, which yeah. one was that?
1: So, before the jabs were approved, so I think his paper was somewhere around October, November 2020. Is
0: he the one that was critical of it?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and he's the kind of guy that, to me, you should have on this panel because basically what he looked at, he said, okay, there's a lot of vaccine vaccines, in inverted commas, because they're mRNA and viral vector technology, so we call them injections. There's a lot of injections in trials at the moment. So he really simply just looked at what are they testing? And he did a little table. And if you look at his paper from autumn 2020, there's a brilliant little table in it where he's got um, the Pfizer jab, the Johnson & Johnson jab, the AstraZeneca jab, Moderna, there was a Mm. Russian one, um, Sinovac or whatever. And he then just put down the left hand side, um, which of these are testing whether or not you can stop transmission? And there's a cross in every box in that row. So none of them are testing transmission. Which of them are testing severity of outcome? None of them were testing severity of outcome. So he gets down to what are they actually testing? So yeah. they were all testing, would you? Get a positive PCR test. Now, we all know that the PCR test was a joke. You run it to 45 cycles. You can basically work out that your chickens in the garden have got COVID. Um, no, don't so- say that. <laughs> it? Do
0: not need to get masks on them?
1: No, they're fine. Do I to
0: tell them to social distance?
1: Timing up and, and catching my eye. But- I need to tell them to social distance. Oh, we can come on to where the social distancing came from in a minute, if we remember. Let me scribble it down and then we'll come back to that six one.
0: Feet. Six feet, six, 666. Tell you where it came from. because I, I, I think it's know. all 666.
1: <laughs> Might be that. Um, yeah, so it was basically, did you have a positive PCR test or not? And then, of course, the great whistleblow work that Brooke um, Jackson did. When I she need to get
0: running, her on the podcast. I need to get her you on. You do.
1: When she was running the trials over in um, America. So the whole idea was that, um, let's take the Pfizer trial. So you've got 44,000 people, 22,000 people have been given a genuine placebo, which mm. for the Pfizer trial was a saline solution. Mm. Um, and the other... 22,000 have been given this mRNA injection and then they were tested to see who ended up getting COVID. So they weren't testing, did you then transmit it? They weren't testing severity of outcome. That's really important because you know on Twitter, you've got all these people saying, oh, I know it doesn't stop you getting it and it doesn't stop transmission, but it would have been so much worse if I didn't get it. It's like that was never tested. There isn't like, show me the academic evidence for that. There is none. Mm. It's just what they made up when they realized that the world got to realize it didn't test transmission or would you get it? Um, So there were then some really, so Brooke Jackson realized that you could swing it quite easily. It was supposed to be blinded. So if I'm in the placebo and you're in, you've are in, you got the jab, mm. we're not supposed to know. So Brooke is not supposed to know. But she was running three different trials and she's like, but people know. There's, it's just shabby process. People know who got the jab and who didn't get the jab. And then, of course, it's in your interest to... Give some great results for Pfizer because then Pfizer want to use your trial center again. Yeah. And that's really lucrative. So if you can <clears> sort of know that actually you got the jab and I didn't, um, then just keep testing me because at some point I'm going to test positive and then that's one positive result in the placebo arm. Do
0: you now- know what? And, and I, what I've found out speaking to Headley reese exactly what you're just talking about, everything is outsourced. I wasn't aware of this. I wasn't aware that actually they don't even have the manufacturing capacity.
2: Yeah.
0: Everything they do, the the way the tests, the trials, everything, everything's outsourced. Yeah. It's just a a, a shiny label, a few people working there, mainly marketing. Yeah. And that's it. Like even the AstraZeneca vaccine wasn't produced by AstraZeneca. Yeah. It was outsourced to another manufacturer. I can't remember the name of it. Um, it escapes me, but Hedley Reese messaged me to say, oh, yeah, they, they don't make it. There's another company that makes it. And that AZ vaccine, which is associated with so much harm and clots and whatnot, which was quietly just rolled away. No one talked about it. Because if you say it's publicly withdrawn, then it has to be investigated. I still think they're they're making another one.
1: Well, Johnson & Johnson is also a viral vector jab. So they are gene therapies. We need to call them what they are. They're gene therapies. Absolutely. They're trying to, they're trying to get your cells... To take on board certain instructions, it's just the message was delivered into the body in different ways. So, with the AstraZeneca and the Johnson and Johnson, it was called a viral vector um, technology. So, what they were, AstraZeneca, were basically giving you a chimpanzee virus that wasn't believed to be harmful to humans. Let's hope they got that bit right. But the virus then gets into your cells and with it, it takes the message, just, hey, make billions of these spike protein things. So as we know, the Pfizer and the Moderna was giving the same message to the body, but giving it in a different way, yeah. which was um, through but sort of putting a lipid nanoparticle so that it would get into the cells. Um, the cells wouldn't be able to break it down before it got in. Um, and then it gives it the same instructions. So that that's what was sort of going on. there's so much that people don't realize. So one of my favorite statistics about the trial is more than 99% of people in the trials didn't get COVID. So I would say, oh, can I have the placebo then? Because 99% of people who had the placebo didn't get COVID and they didn't get any any side effects. Um, I mean, actually the AstraZeneca placebo was a meningitis vaccine. So they did get some side effects because they were having a meningitis vaccine but this is the
0: thing i've seen as well like if you read the book turtles all the way down they're always comparing a vaccine with another vaccine it's never with a true placebo nothing yeah. you know just water sugar whatever yeah and just nothing yeah. They, they it's always with another vaccine yeah so how do we know
2: so
1: do you remember when they came out and this is around <laughs> december just before approval it was so close to approval and pfizer came out and said um we've got 90 percent efficacy on our jab and people don't understand what that means they're like oh that gives me 90 percent more chance of not getting covid yeah um so the numbers at that time because i like numbers do you know how many positive tests that was based on positive pcr tests and we know pcr tests are complete you know nonsense no idea 94 what so 85 had been found in the placebo arm, which is probably careful testing of people in the placebo to make sure you get a, a few number of tests. So 84 in the placebo arm and nine were in the JAB intervention. So if you take 85 minus nine over 85, it's 90%. That's how they get the 90% relative risk. And at the time it got approval, there were only 170 positive PCRs. So we have put over 10 billion jabs in arms across the world on the back of 170 positive bollocks PCR tests. And for the AstraZeneca jab, it was based on 131 positive bollocks because they are inaccurate. Honestly, you can, I mean, I know people who tested their dog and an African president tested a papaya. It really was that ridiculous. What the frack? And we then went out. But then when you talked about manufacturing a minute ago, remember I worked in manufacturing for Mars. Mm. So I know useless things like we produce 50 million Mars bars in the Slough factory, I think it's per day. How did they get 5 billion vials of this stuff within days of the December 2020 approval? Right. That's often puzzled me. I don't know the answer, by the way. Yeah. Were they planning, were they banking on getting approval? Were their factories churning them out where did they even get the little glass bottles from
0: so i this is what i mean so like just talking to hedley reese on my podcast about the supply chain everything takes a long time because everything takes a long time every step i mean just changing like upscaling from a small amount of production thousands or whatever to millions Billions. Billions. Yeah. The, you need quality control. Yeah. You need to go through the testing all over again, the animal testing, the efficacy, the toxicity, the distribution, whatever. Because just the, the, the chemical processes can change these chemicals, that, You know the 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 pharmaceutical key ingredients. And so you could change the safety profile.
1: You used to have to keep it cold. Do you remember? It's yeah, like, it, how uh, are we going to administer it? When so what happened with it? that? Oh, they just gave up. Because they, I think they thought, Um, oh we've got to keep the Pfizer one at minus 60 and there were only a few fridges in the UK apparently and then of course if you remember the rollout it was oh come to a church come to
0: a sports I didn't see any fridges there were no
1: fridges so they're thinking okay if we're going to turn over
0: the leisure centre in Newport and try to get a throughput but what I'm saying is like those vials you know to have those vials all those billions of glass bottles you need to order you need production you need to you know outsource you need or you know money so the way i see it is the the regulatory bodies were just rubber stamping you know you're meant to process bundles and boxes and boxes to read through all the data and research they, they had no interest in that and yeah. and you know the mhra head jane whatever her name is she even said we we're enablers now yeah
2: yeah
0: you know instead of, so that. instead yeah. of standing there and say like stop pharmaceutical companies, We're going to check your products. We're going to make sure that they're safe before we give them to our population. It's almost like, come on, in you come. And without really just a cursory glance, like, oh, okay, sure. If that's what you say it is, we'll we'll, we'll approve it. And, And that revolving doors where, you know, the people in big pharma come into regulatory bodies, but more often the people in regulatory affairs end up in big pharma with their big directorships and whatever. You know, it's th- this revolving door business is, again, conflict of interest and corruption of our system. And these regulatory bodies, I believe, are totally captured. They're not protecting us, the population, from big pharma. Yeah. And that's scary.
1: Think, think of what that trial should have gone through. So it should have started off with some trials on animals. Now, I've looked into this. There were a couple of animal trials.
0: I saw two or three.
1: You are. You're talking six rats. 10 monkeys, six monkeys or whatever it was. I mean, it was absolutely
2: minute.
0: Can I just correct me if I'm wrong? Because I looked at this as well. It was like, literally, we'll put some um, viral particles down some monkey's nose, we'll wash it, irrigate it, aspirate it, and then, you know, with the vaccine, see if there's any antibodies or whatever. It was literally like that. There was no biodistribution, no toxicity, no effect on fertility or pregnancy or the the children or whatever. There was none of that, no safe level They killed them.
1: The monkeys, I understand,
0: were killed quite soon after as well. So if
2: there were
1: any effects that even showed up in primates. um, But we've tested drugs before. I mean, I don't know if you remember that, that terrible one um, where there was a, no, there was there was one in London many years ago where there were half a dozen people that were testing a drug. It might have been for elephantitis. Oh, or I something.
0: think I know what you mean. And the, 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 the healthy adults oh. all died or something.
1: Yeah. I mean, they, within seconds of this going in the body, and it had been tested on animals, within seconds um, they were having complete organ failure, malfunction.
0: But Zoe, um, but the problem is these studies, right? Going back to that, those animal studies, those monkey studies. You know, I read them, right? And and they're, they they write it in such a way that look how clever we are. And we looked at the assays, and we used this technique, and this was our methodology, and we used this statistical. Uh, so it sounds superficially like, oh, this is a this is a very scientific paper. But when you cut through all of that, do you know what I saw? Bullshit.
1: <laughs> well, they didn't do.
0: They were polishing things. turd. Yeah. Phase one trials, I mean, they, they they basically
1: skipped almost all the processes. So, phase one trial should be you've tested it on animals and you've tested it properly on animals. So, then you give it to these sort of half a dozen human beings just to see if there is a completely different reaction. Um, then you take it and you give it to more people. So, then you might be into the hundreds or even the low thousands and then you're testing it over a period of trial time and that's your sort of phase two trials. When you get into phase three trials, You're testing it on thousands of people for whom it is intended. So at that stage, we should have been giving it to older people and vulnerable people. Because if you remember at the beginning, that was all that was supposed to be Mm. the the recipients of this thing. Well, they didn't. Um, You know, I happened to know someone, very fit, healthy, medical professional in her 40s who was involved in the AstraZeneca trial. Um, You didn't need it, quite frankly. You were never at risk from COVID. I mean, good on you for volunteering for a um, pharmaceutical trial, not necessarily this one, um, but good on you. But it shouldn't have been tested on you or maybe in the phase two phase, Mm. but then phase three phase, it should have been tested on older people and vulnerable people. And was it going to do anything for them? But they tested as far as it produced antibodies. Mm. Um, Will Zippity do it well? Because you're telling the body to produce billions of these spike proteins. The body is going to build some, some antibodies to these
0: things. 100%. But
1: is it then going to stop you getting COVID? No, it isn't. And then, of course, stuff that's come out subsequently in this, um, Claire Craig has done some great work on this, yeah. in that sort of naught to 14 day period, um, you're really vulnerable. And I looked at a South African paper where they um, take they were looking at vaccination and exercise.
0: And it's funny, they said specifically in that two-week period, sorry for yeah. interrupting, that, you know what, despite having the jab, you're technically unvaccinated. So exactly. in this vulnerable period, when you yeah. get COVID, yeah. you're unvaccinated. Yeah. What the frack? Yeah, yeah. Talk about fudging the numbers again. And yet it was- I, I, have yeah. you not seen that? The, yeah. the, the epidemic of fudgery that goes yeah. on and the manipulation of numbers and statistics. Yeah to hoodwink us because not all of us are smart with numbers. I will confess, not me. You know, I only got an A in math because I had this tutor who was amazing, but I'll be honest with you. I can't number crunch. Uh, that's not my skill. You can number crunch and you'll see something and be like, Pfft, this is bullshit. For me, I really need to concentrate. And I can imagine for the average person on the street, they look at these numbers and, and they can't really make sense of it. So they just go by trust. Um, But that's, I think one of the big things they've used, they've manipulated words and they've manipulated numbers to hoodwink us all.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, 90% effective. If you then sat down with people and said that was based on 94 PCR tests, they'd be like, <laughs> like what you said, what the frack? Or what? I mean, people just weren't told this. They didn't know that. I really hope that next time the trust is going to be so low. Because um, people are going to so, say you winked me last time. I'm not going to let you do it again. No,
0: no. So listen, recap, 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 recap. So the the trial, the the vaccines, these so called vaccines are mRNA gene therapies. They're gene therapies, and I think even the the submission to the FDA and everything called them gene therapies. They weren't called vaccines, by the way. And they changed the definition of vaccine to include these as vaccines. So, this is all facts. It's not conspiracy theory. Um, these were rolled out rapidly. In such a manner, you'd really need to question how, because the production process, the, the, the design, the studies, they take months for a reason. You can't just click your finger and make it happen. To make it happen, you either are doing major shortcuts or this was being planned well in advance, and it could be a combination of both.
1: Well, they say, don't they, oh, we, we didn't have time. We didn't have time to wait. We were in an emergency situation. Um, well, first of all, we weren't in an emergency situation. Nope. By and large, the the first sort of Gompertz curve wave had gone through in March, early April, twenty twenty. We were actually over the worst already by then.
0: I love hearing that. You know, that's my wife's name, her name. Gompertz. Yeah, <laughs> that's brilliant. Yeah. Anyway, it's c- brilliant. Carry on. Um,
1: so we we were over the worst. So we were not in an emergency situation. In fact, the funny thing that the trials were being undertaken in the summer of twenty twenty. And they were struggling to get people infected, which is why 99% of people didn't get COVID. So if you remember, they actually opened up some other centres and there's a, um, there's, there's a little article, I think it was in the Sunday Times or something, one of the broadsheets, where they had this little thing saying, oh, they might actually have to try to expose the people in the vaccine trial to COVID mm. because not enough people are getting COVID to be able to come up with any meaningful results. So then there was a bit of COVID over in Brazil at the time. So they had some people over in Brazil. There was a bit of um, COVID in... Even if
0: it was actually COVID, God Sa- knows. In
1: South Africa. And then what was interesting, wherever we had vaccine trials going on, were where we ended up with variants. So we ended up with a Brazilian variant. We ended up with a South Africa variant. Mm. We ended up with a Kent variant. And so I'm like, this is a bit curious. And and I'm sure Geert van den Bosch would have something to say about that. And he'd say, well, I think... We were impacting the, um, what does he say, don't vaccinate during a pandemic. It's just the single worst thing that you can do because you just encourage the virus to mutate to get around what you've just done. And sure enough, it was almost as wherever we were going, the virus was mutating. And- so
0: so go back to the, the, the vaccine. So, I mean, I, I, mean I, I honestly think this was a whole pandemic. It was just planned so efficiently. And I think it was almost like, the virus was there to justify the vaccine, not the vaccine was there to treat the, the virus. It was the other way around. It was like, how do we get this vaccine out? And we're going to make this pandemic to, 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 to create the demand for it. And the way they rushed it out and the vials and the, and the studies, it's all BS. Um, but the thing is, even that study, that original study, that Pfizer study was so fundamentally flawed, so poorly designed. And it was, remember, it was a press release what 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 big paper research comes out in a press release? It was mental. that was the first time yeah. we heard of it and and then you it was all about you know relative risk reduction, not absolute, and then the biggest thing was the control arm was all given the jab, yeah, very soon after. what the hell if yeah. that's not covering up your crime scene what what is yeah you know you do not tamper with the crime scene, folks yeah, you know anybody who's watched any half decent yeah. <laughs> crime movie or thriller will know that yeah. They just went and wiped everything clean. It was just mental. I think that was deliberate as well, actually. So um,
1: one of the other things that I'm pleased I did at the time was December 2020, the two papers that came out. Yes, it was a press release, but it it was related to papers. Um, So there was a Pfizer paper in the New England Medical Journal and there was an AstraZeneca paper in The Lancet and they both came out in December 2020. Pfizer was approved just before AstraZeneca, but there wasn't much in it. And I went through both of those papers because that's what I do every Monday. I take an academic paper and I dissect it. This, that week I took two.
0: You do that every Monday?
1: Every Monday. We're I'm doing it for
0: so glad there's people like you in this years. world because that's the last thing I would ever do.
1: <laughs> and yeah, I mean, it, a couple of weeks ago it was on red meat and diabetes. Back in December 20, the big story was obviously the approval of the vaccine. So all the numbers are there. So when people are saying, oh, we didn't know at the time, I just keep retweeting that and go, this is what we knew at the time. If I could find this, you could find this. This was public information at the time and I went through, didn't test transmission, didn't test um, severity of outcome. Uh, you knew it didn't stop you getting it because some people who had had the um, mRNA injection did get it. Um, I went through the numbers. So, I said it's based on 170 for Pfizer, 131 for AstraZeneca. I went through the relative risk, what the absolute risk was. So, the absolute risk, risk difference of Pfizer at the time was 0.84 that translates into a number needed to treat of 119. So at the time, um, I would have joked with someone to say, oh, you're going for your Pfizer jab tomorrow. Well, take 118 friends with you and then hope you're the one that doesn't then test positive for COVID because that's that's the way to explain it. Now, the NNT since...
0: Actually, I love that, by the way, I love that. It's
1: gone through the roof, the NNT since, because of course it does, so Andrew, Number
0: needed to treat. Number
1: needed to treat, so... um I'll do the flu one as well because there's a great Cochrane paper um, and I oh, did Oh, the- please.
0: I hate the flu jab.
1: <laughs> right. So um, there's a great Cochrane paper putting in Cochrane um, flu uh, vaccination um, and, and it should take you to um, their sort of classic paper because Cochrane papers are before it got also corrupted by pharma. The ones that are sort of pre-2019 <clears throat> probably are still very, very good papers. Um, and this one looked at the um, efficacy of the flu vaccine in, present- in preventing a flu-like illness. And it concluded that the number needed to treat was 71, um, which is just doing the kind of numbers that I did of what's the relative risk, what's the absolute risk, and then you can work out the number needed to treat from that. So, um, to put it into lay terms, my uh, we had somebody um, doing some painting on the house um, recently in the autumn and said, oh, I've got to leave at four o'clock if that's okay. It's like, hey, you can go whenever you want. We don't, mm. get, we don't mind. Mm. And he said, oh, no, that's nice. I'm just going off to get my flu jab. And I said, oh, have you got your 70 friends with you? And he said, what do you mean? I said, well, you need to take 70 friends with you and then hope that you're the one that doesn't develop the flu-like illness. Mm. He's like, what do you mean? It's like, well, that's the number that you need to treat with the flu vaccine for one person to avoid a flu-like illness, which... Might just be a bit of a headache and a bit of a sore throat and, hey, you cracked on, but you just didn't feel 100%. When
0: you say it like that, it's actually, it's actually insane.
1: Why would you do it? Because then it's all risk.
0: And then, you know, the, the number needed to treat at the time, then you would have said... And this doesn't actually, sorry, sorry for interrupting, this number needed to treat for a flu-like illness or whatever, COVID. What none of this actually also, what they never talk about is, What is the actual risk of harm? Yeah.
2: Because
0: if you're going to talk about risk of benefit, there's always a risk of harm. And no one ever, ever explains, by the way, this is your potential risk of benefit, one in 180 needed to treat, but actually there's a one in 800 risk that you might have a serious problem. Yeah. You know, and if, if people were given that information, they'd be like, whoa, hold on one second. So that's what the efficacy is like there's a yeah. big chance of one in 180 that's not even going to make any difference to me like so you know you know it's just not gonna make any difference to me like that that lower an efficacy but actually there's a risk as well maybe i'll do leave you- it so it's not safe and it's not effective yeah it's the exact you- opposite of what we were told do you remember
1: with the in the AstraZeneca trial, there were a couple of incidences of transverse myelitis and it actually stopped the trial for a while. Do you remember that?
0: I do know. I had people reaching then, out to me saying, look, we've got Gillian barre syndrome yeah. and God knows what else. Yeah.
1: So there were a couple of cases of transverse myelitis and it was basically uh crack on, nothing to do with the jab. So in, oh, That's still going on, by the way. Yeah. No, that, that gaslighting yeah. still happening. I know. So December 20, when I did that report on those two papers, I looked at the safety particularly of the AstraZeneca jab and confessed what they actually admitted to in their paper was about a one in 6,000 incidence of transverse myelitis. So you go to vaccinate, sorry, mRNA, inject 60 million people in the UK, scale that up, you're going to get a lot of incidences of transverse myelitis. And that's what they were fessing up to. And that was having discounted a couple of cases that had happened along the way. So it was probably higher than that. Now, the normal incidence of transverse myelitis I went to have a look at, in normal circumstances, it's somewhere between one in a quarter of a million and one in a million. Wow. So your chance of getting transverse myelitis at some point in your life is somewhere between those two numbers. Let's say one in 600,000. Your chance of getting that after having the AstraZeneca jab as a minimum what they owned up to was one in 6,000. Now that's not a risk that I want to start taking for something that actually everybody had already had. Yeah. So it doesn't stop you getting something you've already had. And, and even the risks that we know about
0: are too high, but then of course there was this other thing. It's like, if, but it didn't even make sense. So say for example, you've got measles. The last thing you would then want is a measles vaccination. You've had yeah, it, you've yeah. got your immunity. Yeah. And what I didn't understand was again, this bullshit hard sell, like, oh, everybody needs a vaccine. You need a vaccine to try uh, to travel. Hold on a second. But well, significant, according to you and your daily charts and the massive number of people infected, you know, all of us have had COVID. Yeah. So why do we need it? Yeah. Why does everyone need it? Why can't you say, oh, actually, you know what, if you've tested positive or if you had COVID, you don't need the vaccine anymore. You're, you've got natural immunity. It was like, no, yeah. every single person. And that's, you know, that's when I popped my head up when the mandates came through because that was an existential threat for me
2: yeah.
0: and everything around me. And it was a, a complete violation of medical ethics. You know, I was like, to hell with this,
2: yeah.
0: to hell with this bullshit. And I, I just want to quickly ask you something. Why is it you're sitting over here and you're throwing me all this information? It's so logical, so reasonable. You're not conspiratorial. It's all factual based. You're not a doctor, like as in like medical doctor. Mm-hmm.
2: Absolutely.
0: Why, why, like there's some like 280,000 registered medical doctors and what there's like a handful that you publicly know of that are speaking out against these vaccines. Why, what the hell is going on?
1: Part of it is indoctrination. So I had a conversation with a junior doctor in about May 20 and we were talking about the lockdowns and I said, I'm actually getting really quite concerned That they appear to be trying to keep us in lockdown until they've got a vaccine and at the time i didn't i didn't realize it was going to be mrna technology so i was thinking they were looking for a measles type vaccine or a Mm. a traditional vaccine and i knew that that was going to take years it was going to take nearer 10 years than 10 months and i expressed a concern and this junior doctor said to me you need to stop talking and I said, what do you mean? We're at a dinner. And I said, what do you mean? You just need to shut up right now and stop talking. You must not talk about vaccines. You just must not talk about them. They are the holy grail. They've saved so many lives. They are the best thing that's ever happened in the world. And even talking about them that could raise doubt in someone's mind that they're anything other than the best thing that's ever happened is really dangerous. And you just must stop it straight away. I'm, I'm not continuing this conversation anymore." And I just thought, wow, the level of indoctrination is absolutely unbelievable. And, and by
0: the way, I'm on the receiving end. I see it and I hear it.
1: You've had it as well. But why?
0: I'm dangerous. Honestly. You're
1: dangerous to the system. You're dangerous to to um, things that are not allowed to be challenged. And I, I just don't think they realize what they've done with this.
0: Now. And a multi, multi-billion dollar yeah. industry. I mean, do you think that's got nothing to do with it? Do you think? the multi-multi-billion dollar industry isn't concerned about doctors who speak out and say these things are dangerous.
1: Absolutely.
0: So what are they going to do? They're going to make sure people like Andrew Wakefield and myself, Dr Sam White or whoever, you know, are going to suffer consequences.
1: What I don't think they've realised because they shouldn't have called these vaccines. They shouldn't have changed... I like it. Well, yeah, because what it's done is it's actually opened up a whole can of worms. It's
0: absolutely... I actually personally like it. And when you keep saying these aren't vaccines, I used to be like that. I've come around to it. It's the best thing they've ever done because now they're shining the light on the whole goddamn thing. And the reason why they wanted it to be vaccines is because then, you know, there's a, there's a lower regulatory kind of like level of, you know, regulation for vaccines because they say, oh, vaccines are safe. You don't need to do as much to prove the efficacy. The whole point is you label it a, label it a vaccine. Oh, well, we, we know these are safe. You know, these are the best things since sliced bread. Let's just pass it through. And, and people need to understand that, that the whole vaccine industry is a sacred cow that really needs to be, I think, brought down. I'll be honest with you. You know, if you get me a vaccine that has gone through proper studies and proper trials, long-term safety data, true placebos, and it works, you know what, I'll take it. You show me that it's safe, I'm not gonna get an adverse effect, and it's gonna it's gonna help me, it's gonna make me healthier, I'll take it. But until that day, no.
1: I've been at dinner parties since this where mums, middle class mums, who previously, if someone had said on mum's neck, Oh, I'm not sure about the HPV vaccine for my daughter, they'd have gone in, you know, because it is zero tolerance, is is what you've just said. They'd have gone, woo well, you, you anti-vaxxer, what are you doing?
0: Oh, I've and had I'm, that,
1: yeah. And they are now saying, "Should we be having the HPV vaccine?" So people who have never previously questioned these have have started to question them, and it it's very. I, I don't think they realise what they've done yet. And I think they did call it a vaccine because they knew you've basically got a billion people on social media who will do your zero tolerance for you, and you know what it was like. I mean, the minute you said, "Whoa, I'm not sure about these." Whoa, the army came in on social media. I mean, if you weren't Mm. actually physically removed, because that's what people were getting removed from Twitter for, I was really careful during that period to sail close to the wind, but not to actually get myself banned, because I thought if I get myself banned, I've got no voice. I've got to censor myself a little bit to make sure I've still got any kind of voice. Um, But it's only now that we're able to say this is mRNA technology. But why did people at the time not think, Okay. So we know about transverse myelitis. And if you remember, there were a couple of anaphylactic shocks on the afternoon. They first started jabbing people up in London with the Pfizer jab because I was actually with... And
0: that's why you had to stay for 15 minutes or something.
1: Exactly. I was actually with our little friend Charlotte at the time. Um, That day I was with her and I remember her thinking, oh gosh, this could be a showstopper. Uh, Of course it wasn't. It just, everything just
0: crashed. Shout out to Charlotte, a (laughs) a good human being.
1: We love Charlotte. Um, But why do people not think, okay, so we've red flag transverse myelitis and potential anaphylactic shock, but we have no idea what this is going to do in one year's time, three years time, five years time, 10 years time. We have no idea what this is going to do to fetuses when we inject pregnant women. We have no idea. It's mucking up periods. We knew that pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, so many of my female friends um, would say, oh, my periods have gone mental, or I had friends. In the menopause, who are suddenly not in the menopause any longer? When did a vaccine for a respiratory virus ever impact menstrual cycles? Whenever.
0: What worries me, though, is Zoe. All of this, what you've just said, hundred percent, and it should be scaring the living daylights of everybody. um What I'm really worried about is not only have has no one been brought to justice, not even one person, not even a pansy. No one has been called up. All of these people are getting their gongs and their awards and their promotions and big fat checks, paychecks, right? You know, they're all doing really well. And 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 now you've got factories, factories mushrooming everywhere. And the whole lineup of new mRNA technology, multiple viruses, you just need to go on these pharmaceutical websites. And they'll say, oh, we're developing a, a vaccine for this, an mRNA vaccine for this, an mRNA. All these new conditions and now for disease treatment as well for cardiac problems and everything so you know you and I know that ninety five percent of disease is mal you know nutri malnutrition nutritional deficit um poor lifestyle choices poor food and it's not genetic it's not g- disease most gen- diseases are not genetic so actually if you want to treat all these things start eating properly start being healthy in that regard and but no, the, the, the focus is on all of these new vaccines. And I, I find that terrifying because they're building all this infrastructure and investment and the government's funding and everything. They're not scared about getting into trouble. They're, they, they almost feel so cocky and self-assured that we're going to get away with it again and again and again. That's what really terrifies me, the confidence that they have, you know, because they wouldn't be putting money into this if, if they were nervous about it.
1: I tell you now, I will never consent to an mRNA injection. Well, never.
0: What does it say on my hoodie? I don't know <laughs> if anybody can see. I do not consent.
2: Yeah.
0: I'm uncaptured and I don't bloody consent. You know, um, and I think more people need to, n- to know that. Yeah. Hopefully, after listening to you, more people will. Um, I really want to talk about statins. So let's talk about cholesterol. What is it? C twenty seven H forty six O. Oh yeah, yeah. It's not bad, is it?
1: Yeah. Come good. on, you, you
0: must be impressed. So <laughs> this one
1: I keep in my head as well, actually.
0: Yeah, me too. Yeah, me too. Because again, one of those things where if you aren't totally bought in with the whole COVID pandemic, you should hopefully this will be a nice one to tease you in. Because like, I think that once you start showing people a scam. Hopefully that will make them a little thing in their brain start thinking, "Wow, if they've lied about this, mm-hmm. what else have they lied? Spoiler alert, everything yeah. <laughs> everything folks, but anyway, <laughs> like don't drink tap water <laughs> you know every everything, but statins is a big one because like. It's a multi billion dollar industry. You know, even one, I think Lipitor is like 12, 15 billion dollars.
1: And way more than that. Way Way, more.
0: And there's so many of them now. And and this (laughs) thing is built on the concept that, you know what, cholesterol is bad. Get your cholesterol down. And you know what, you, you, you know, everyone who gets a heart attack, high blood pressure, diabetes, you should get on cholesterol. But the thing, um, a statin, but that goes against everything I've learned about cholesterol. Cholesterol is a basic essential building block for so many things in your body like hormones
2: everything.
0: everything and if you don't have cholesterol you die you can't eat it you have to make it is so important yeah. you know your body doesn't say oh you need to eat this kind of food because you might not get it so it says i'm going to make this shit because it's so important i'm not leaving it to chance yeah this is how important cholesterol is yeah. You're the cholesterol lady. Share <laughs> well, your wisdom about cholesterol so that in the next 10-15 minutes no one will want to be on a statin.
1: Well, it's not it's not for me to tell anyone no yeah, whether they take but something or not. Give them the information.
0: But, give them the information. Yeah. The real truth as yeah. opposed to the bullshit propaganda.
1: Okay, so um I got into this through the same route as the PhD. So fascination with obesity Why did we change the dietary guidelines? Let's look at the evidence at the time, that was the whole PhD topic. The second chapter in the PhD, you've got your introduction and then the second chapter is the review of the literature. So you go back in the literature and you say, where did we even get this idea that fat was bad for us? And it actually started with the idea that cholesterol was bad for us. So it started with some Russian pathologists at the turn of the 20th century. This is the early 1900s. And men were just, they they hadn't even really got the term heart attack by then. That came Mm. in around 1948 um, into the sort of, you know, the medical terminology. But they'd noticed. Oh, that um, late. I don't know. Yeah. I'm pretty sure it's about 1948 as one of those uh, official um, reasons for death or whatever. The
0: young people listening will be like, that's ages ago. (laughs) Someone my age (laughs) is not very long ago. It's not
1: very long ago, given. Where we've got to with heart disease, which is one in three people are now dying of heart disease. So, these early pathologists had noticed um, some men who kind of died suddenly. Um, And because they were pathologists, they'd cut them open and they'd realized that there was some sort of kind of blockage in the arteries, which was obviously what had then stopped the blood getting into the heart. And that's what they call the widow maker.
2: Mm.
1: Um, So, they looked at what was blocking up the arteries and they would see. At the scene of the damage, they would find lipids, fat, Um, and one of the lipids that they would find would be cholesterol. So, not unreasonably, one of their hypotheses was the cholesterol has caused the blockage. Mm. Now, a different way of looking at it, and Natasha Campbell McBride would use this analogy, would be, that's like saying that when you arrive at a fire, the firefighters are there and therefore they must have caused the fire.
0: She told me that. Yeah. they, I they love didn't, her.
1: They didn't cause, I know Natasha, I spent with her at conferences and I loved that analogy. So I always credit her with that. And it's the same with cholesterol. It didn't cause the damage. It was actually there to repair the damage. So, um, cholesterol is traveling around in our bodies all the time, as you say, you gave a great intro, the body is making it, we can't leave it to chance that we would get it from food. So, they had this early idea that cholesterol was somehow implicated in this heart disease sudden death, even though they didn't call it heart disease at the time. So they started off by experimenting on rabbits and they fed them purified cholesterol and sure enough, the rabbits ended up in a bad way but rabbits are herbivores and cholesterol is only found in foods of animal origin. So, vegans don't eat cholesterol because they don't eat meat, fish, eggs, and dairy, and meat, fish, eggs, and dairy contain cholesterol. So, massive nutritional flaw, dear pathologists of the early 20th century, you were giving the wrong food to the wrong animal.
2: Mm. So, it
1: wasn't the prize that they sort of clogged up. Wind forward about 50 years, along comes Ansel Keys, and he um, looked at this and said mm, I'm quite interested in cholesterol so he then tried the experiments again but on humans so he tried to feed humans um, cholesterol he tried to increase their blood levels of cholesterol by various means and he actually concluded cholesterol doesn't matter dietary cholesterol you know unless you're a rabbit or a chicken it just doesn't matter it's just mm. not an issue but people didn't realize that he'd said that so that's where we should have said cholesterol's not an issue end of move on, happy days. But we didn't. It was still in people's minds that cholesterol was an issue. And he turned his attention to fat. And he said, I think it's total fat, which is where the germs of the whole Senator McGovern stuff started um, getting formed. He said, I think it's total fat. Then he did the Seven Countries study, um, which was a brilliant study, don't get me wrong. But by the end of the Seven Countries study, he said, you know what, I don't think it's total fat, but I think it's saturated fat. But his idea of saturated fat was cake and ice cream. It's like, yeah, they've got saturated fat in them, but they've got sugar and flour and other stuff in them. So you're blaming the wrong thing. So there've just been so many nutritional errors along the way. But we ended up with this idea that cholesterol causes heart disease. And then of course- Bad
0: cholesterol, good cholesterol.
1: Don't even start. So that's a revelation for me. So (laughs) when I first heard that term, I'm like, okay, so the chemical formula for cholesterol is C27H46O. What's the chemical formula for the bad version? And what's the chemical formula for the good version? Oh, of course. It's the there same. Isn't one. I know. <laughs> there isn't one. But this this is one of the things that starts waking people up because they've all been to the doctor. Yeah. And they've had their blood test and they're like, Oh, your bad cholesterol's not very good. But you know, your good cholesterol is not too bad. So that, you know, there's some good news.
0: So for those people who are listening who don't know, you and I right. clearly know I'll
1: explain it. And,
0: you know, explain the whole
1: yeah, so I'll li- explain li- it. lipoproteins
0: proteins and how it's yeah, yeah, yeah. not not water soluble and explain yeah, all that. Yeah, yeah. Explain so, all that.
1: If you get a glass of water and you get some olive oil and you drop some olive oil in the glass of water, it doesn't mix; it just sits on the top.
2: Mm-hmm. So
0: the body
1: needs you to transport lipids, fats, around the body because every cell needs fats. It needs these vital fats to do their vital work. But you can't. Cells put, are made out of fat. Exactly. You you can't put those fats in the bloodstream. Think of blood is water. Mainly water, yeah. And lipids are the fats. so you can't put that olive oil in the bloodstream because it is going to clog up your arteries. It's not going to be a very good thing. So the body is just brilliant, which is why we should leave it alone and not block pathways. So the body says, right, I'm going to make these things and they're going to be called lipoproteins, sort of lipo from fat and protein. We know that word. I think of them as little taxis. And my little taxi taxi is going to be water friendly on the outside because it needs to travel through the water blood And it's going to be fat friendly on the inside because it needs to carry those fats and they need to be happy. So the little taxis are going around the bloodstream and there are five main little taxis and in order of size they are chylomicrons, um, VLDL, very low density lipoproteins, intermediate density lipoproteins, IDL, LDL which is the one that they tell you is bad cholesterol and then HDL which is the one they tell you is good cholesterol. LDL stands for low-density lipoprotein, Mm.
2: um,
1: and it just means that the cargo is packed a little less tightly than the HDL, which is high-density, tightly-packed cargo. Mm. But they are lipoproteins, they are taxis. Now, those taxis carry cholesterol, phospholipids, protein, and triglycerides. They don't just carry cholesterol, they carry the four main fats that the body needs and all the cell needs and then the taxis go off around the body to drop their cargo off when the cells so that like the LDL taxi will go around and, and cells have got an LDL receptor and if they need the cargo from that LDL in that cell they need some of those phospholipids or cholesterol or whatever then the receptor will grab the little taxi and it can then offload its cargo and then the taxi goes off around the bloodstream and takes back any The HDL taxi will then actually take back any that's not been used um, back to the liver for recycling, not for the body to get rid of. Mm. If, If it was so bad for us, then surely the body would get rid of it, but it doesn't. It's still making it, so it just recycles it. So next time you're with your GP and your GP starts talking about good and bad cholesterol, please correct them. You've got to say, doc, I'm sorry, I heard this podcast and this is nonsense. There's no such thing. Or ask them, what is the chemical formula for bad cholesterol? And then tell me the chemical formula for good cholesterol. And then do you want actually want to tell me what an LDL is and what an HDL is? Because I now know that they're taxis and they're not a good taxi or a bad taxi. They're just taxis with different density yeah. packed lipoproteins. Um, and why would your body be making cholesterol if it's trying to kill you? Yeah, um, It just doesn't make sense. There's, that would be the first real design flaw in the body. You know, your body can keep your pH level within like nothing range. Because it would kill you if it went too far outside. It keeps your blood pressure. If you if you do the right things and look after it, it will keep your blood pressure. Pretty Everything's fine tuned. It's brilliant. It'll keep your temperature absolutely brilliantly tuned. It keeps it all fine tuned. Isn't and it amazing? Yeah, statins are so unbelievably lucrative that when they realised they 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 could control, they could stop the body not entirely make- you know if statins stop the body making cholesterol you would take a statin and drop dead. Um, and in a way, it's a shame that that didn't happen because then it would have kind of put the kibosh on the whole industry. Mm-hmm. They don't stop it completely, but they do, they do stop it. They will lower your cholesterol. They will impair what is known as the mevalinate pathway, which is the pathway by which the body makes cholesterol. Um, but the mevalinate pathway, if, if you actually look at that, Google it, Right down the bottom of the pathway where you've got sort of cholesterol as as sort of one of the final outputs, you've also got an enzyme called CoQ10, which is actually the the body's energy spark plug. In fact, quite often if you go to… You need it for
0: your mitochondrial function.
1: Exactly. So if you go to a functional therapist or something and you're saying, oh, I'm doing the right thing, I'm sleeping, I'm taking vitamin D, I'm getting sunshine, I'm eating well… But I just got no energy at the moment. They might well say, well, look, take CoQ10 for a couple of months mm. and just see if it makes a difference. It's your body's energy spark plug. Let's just see if it sparks things up. And that's downstream of blocking the malonate pathway. So it is going to impact your mitochondrial function. So statins affect your M's. They affect your muscles. They affect your mind. They affect your memory. They
0: affect your
2: Myocardium. Mood.
1: Myocardium. They affect your mojo.
2: Mm.
1: Um, they affect so many So I've
0: foods. got a theory. I've got a theory, Zoe, and um, you've described it beautifully. So I've got a theory about, with Big Pharma, conspiracy theory. <laughs> um, I've got a theory that, like with the jabs and these drugs, they don't actually, I don't, I don't believe in this depopulation, like we're going to kill everybody kind of thing. Because straight away, people would be like up in arms and you know no one would take it. They want the sweet spot where you get sick. And it's done in such a way, slowly, insidiously, where you can't even blame it on the product. And actually, what it will do is profit the company, but it opens up even more things because you need other drugs to deal with the problems that are arising. You need more intervention, more medical help. You need to be more dependent on the system. And just look at these vaccines that we've got now. We've got people getting sick from so many different myriad of complications because the reason why is, it affects every part of your body now. Like you're saying, menstrual irregularities, myocardial, you know, neurodegenerative. There's a list, I think, with Pfizer published, like God knows how many thousands of adverse reactions. Guess what? All of those complications need treatment. Like, you know, I spoke to this neurologist and, you know, I said, like, oh, why are you busy? You know, he was telling me how busy he was when I asked him how he's doing. And he's like, oh, I'm seeing all this weird and wonderful neurology from like my days in med school and the textbooks. I was like, what do you think's driving it? He goes, oh, it's definitely the vaccines. You know so people are now profiting from the misery the hospitals are seeing and treating and investigating, and these people are now in the system and they're sick and I think it's the same with the statins you know you start with one statin and you know suddenly you've got complications you've got other problems <laughs> you just become a dependent individual to the system, beholden to it when actually this is the poison, this is what's actually killing you and i don't I don't know I think it's quite a quite a sinister thing this low statin because it's given to you like oh this is what's going to save you this is what's going to stop you from having a heart attack when actually it's a piece of little poison isn't
1: it I I mean, I love a good conspiracy theory. Don't get, don't get me wrong. If I'm at a, a dinner party and somebody mentions the word conspiracy theory, I'm all ears I'm because I'm, I'm this natural skeptic. I will be naturally filtering it through. Um, I can believe that, but I've actually got a different view.
0: I'd love to hear it. I, I'm open-minded. I think there
1: are so many people who absolutely 100% believe that cholesterol is bad. I think the training of doctors is so effective. We know they only get four hours on nutrition. Um, we know what they get taught. And-
0: I didn't even get that.
1: So they do, they do get this sort of, you can only call it indoctrination. And I think the Harvard Medical School students once, um, this was many, many years ago, they worked out all the conflicts at Harvard. And they actually went to the university and said, Look, are we actually being taught medicine or are we being taught by the pharmaceutical industry? Because that's kind of how it feels to us. And I think medical students are taught by the pharmaceutical industry. And yes, I do think that there are some people who've worked out this is really not good. And actually, I wouldn't want my loved one on these because it is going to affect all of their memory mojo and all the rest of it. But I think the vast majority. Actually, 100% believe that cholesterol is bad for you. They actually believe that there is cholesterol in your arteries. They don't realize that it's in a lipoprotein. Um, You know, people will say, oh, saturated fat clogs up your arteries. And I just burst out laughing. It's like you you do eat your food, don't you? You're not injecting it into your (laughs) arteries. Because trust me, the only way that saturated fat can clog up your arteries is if you inject it into them. There is no way it can leap out of your digestive system and end up in your arterial system. There really isn't. Think about it, folks. Um, so I really do believe they, they buy it. and And I've had, um Bupa, you know have to go for a company medical when you work at these you know Mars and SmithKline Beecham and i've had those company medical doctors in all seriousness looking at me saying oh you know your your cholesterol's fantastic you know your good cholesterol and your bad cholesterol and i just think do i want to fight today or should so i just it's
0: let not it go? it's not the doctors that i'm talking about i'm talking about the pharmaceutical companies they must know that this is all BS. Like,
1: I think they buy it as well. I really do think a lot of people buy it. I, really? I think a lot of people who are writing these papers, I think they're getting a lot of money to buy it. Um, and I'm, I'm just not someone you can buy. So I remember a dietitian contacted me Do you want, do you
0: want to get my cap uncaptured?
1: <laughs> this dietitian said, oh, um, you know, approached me and said, oh, um, Kellogg's, um, we, we could, could we do some joint work for Kellogg's? And I'm nah. like, no. He said, you don't know what they're offering. I don't want to know. There's no price. I'm not doing it. I, I think Kellogg's is shit. So I'm sorry if it's not <laughs> happening. Um, so, you know, when you're, when you're doing these academic papers or when you're making these drugs or when you're selling these drugs or making money from these drugs, I don't think you're too sceptical. I don't think there's a little voice in the back of your head going, oh, do I really want my million dollars a year? Or should I really think if blocking the Mavalinate pathway is a, a terribly good idea or not? I think a lot of people are just not questioning stuff it's like when boris said stay at home and don't go out in the sun for more than an hour a day and whatever you do don't get any vitamin d and um would just lock you down and do you know
0: why that one hour a day business because then they didn't break the geneva convention how you treat prisoners
1: oh no way i didn't know that
0: yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. no way
0: yeah it's really dark
1: Oh, holy moly.
0: Yeah.
1: Hey, we didn't do the social distancing. So,
0: Oh, yeah, do that, if, do that. If
1: you go on my site and you put in social distancing, <clears throat> there's a, a blog post on that one as well. Um, so that came from a review of SARS-CoV-1. And some people had looked back at SARS-CoV-1 and said, right, let's look at all the trials that were done at the time that tried to investigate who ended up getting sars cov one and so um, there were various trials, and they'd look at um, because there were some quite big households over in the in the Far East and Hong Kong and all the rest of it. So you might have ten people in a household, and you go home with SARS CoV one, and they would then look at who got SARS CoV one, and it was the person who was sharing a room with you. So it was your partner if you were in, uh, you know, not uh, frail. It was your carer. Um, It was the person who sat next to you around the dining table, the person who sat where you are, chances are didn't get. So they basically said, what's that? A couple of meters, sharing a bed, end of the table, couple of meters. So it was generally the people who were within a couple of meters who were getting SARS-CoV-2. Okay, they weren't just within a couple of meters. They were having sex. They were sharing bodily fluids. They were sharing food. They were sharing the same bed. They were in the same apartment. This is not, you were in a supermarket two meters away from someone. And that was never tested.
0: It sounds so scientific.
1: Oh, it was on a plane Bloody and it was hell. it was the people in the row in front and the row behind.
0: Oh. that's where it came from. Do you remember do you remember when they, they had these face shields and a mask? Remember when they had perspex screens? Like Oh yeah, you know, yeah.
1: trapping the virus behind the screen. Yeah, because yeah. the
0: virus can't go round. Yeah. It can only and then go they punch your
1: shopping round the screen.
0: Right. Yeah right i mean yeah. like i mean it's lunacy
1: it was mad it was a mad time and we need to remember it was mad otherwise we'll do it again and we, we mustn't need to do it again
0: 100 percent. we need to remember how mad it was and pe- yeah. i think this is the problem people keep forgetting i mean look in summary right don't trust government don't trust science don't trust the experts question everything question everything, question everything.
1: yeah um question this don't trust yeah. me. Go look at my website. Pick apart my
0: blog. Question what you're saying. I've 100%. Done. I mean, the funny thing is someone, someone someone said recently, oh, I I really like your podcast, but I don't agree with everything you say. And I, I replied. Great. Dude, I don't I didn't agree with myself <laughs> last week. Like, how can I expect you to agree with me when I don't even agree with myself from just a few days ago? Yes. <laughs> like, the whole point is that you're meant to question everything yeah. all the time, even yourself. Yeah. Like, I question my sanity every day. I was telling you this, you know, when we came. I was like, how could I be wrong? Like, am I have I just lost a plot? Have I just gone down some weird conspiracy theory and, you know, just given up my con- career and my livelihood for just no reason? No no i think all my doctor colleagues are, are at fault they've they've got they've got they need to do some soul searching and self-reflection <laughs> and have a bit of humility See, i don't i don't mind people making mistakes or getting things wrong so i don't mind people even being brainwashed cuz you know I, to extent i've been brainwashed in the past so everybody makes mistakes what i mind is when you're very arrogant and rude and vindictive and abusive and cruel because you don't think the way I do. I'm better than you. I'm going to make sure you suffer as a consequence. And the more you suffer, the better I am. Look how good and virtuous I am in my righteous indignation that I will make sure that you suffer because, of, because you dis, I disagree with you. And there's very much of that attitude around. And like I said, most of the complaints that have been made about me that I can see, are a lot of them are doctors. A lot of the trolls that I have on, on, on Twitter are doctors. You know, I've had to block so many. And and, and and I know colleagues of mine, like Dr. Dave Cartland, a lot of doctors have gone after him, all the GMC investigations, doctors. That's what makes me really sad. You know, why are these doctors not thinking, hey, what are these guys talking about? You know, I raised, for example, the, uh, a, a video in, in December last year about the vaccines. I'm saying, I'm seeing a lot of harms. I'm hearing my colleagues talking about harm. No one seems to be talking about this massive experiment. I mean, Maybe we should look into this. And instead of the doctors and the private hospitals coming, you know, at the top saying, Oh, we've seen this consent. What are you seeing? Let's talk about this. What I got was stop your social media activity, take down these videos. Otherwise, there'll be repercussions. (laughs) That's what I'm angry and upset about. Like the doctors have forgotten the basic tenets of medical ethics first, do no harm respect bodily autonomy and give informed consent which is choice which is pros and cons and which means respecting your decision so if you decide you know what thanks for that information i'm just going to leave it i'm not i'm not going to have a statin don't judge them for it just say okay i gave you my information i i personally would do something different but that's what you want to do good for you a lot of the doctors have lost that compass
1: If you look at the NHS definition of informed consent, I remember looking at it at the time and it was, there must be absolutely no coercion and no coercion from medical professions, friends or family. Yep. None whatsoever. So, you know, I was with my dad once and he'd come back from a cruise and he got a urinary tract infection and they thought he had a prostate problem. So he'd been um, fitted with a catheter and then it had sort of come off and they thought things were okay. But then... He got into this sort of emergency situation and he couldn't pee. So I rushed him into the L and D and there's this junior doctor in there and he's in the little cubicle and he's going through all the informed consent. And I'm like, dude, please put a catheter on him. He's in agony. And my dad is just like, please, just do it. You know what you need to do. I mean, he was, you know, his blood pressure was going through the roof. And this guy was, No, I've got to take you through informed consent. and you need to know. What I'm about to do, and you need to know what the complications could be, and you need to know. Mm. Dad is just like, for Frick's sake, will you just do it? Um, and then I you feel compare. like that right
0: now. My tiny bladder's bursting. Would oh, you know me.
1: mine is as well? Yeah,
0: we'll I, wrap up. We'll we wrap up in about
1: fifteen hours. Yeah, we? We,
0: we'll wrap up in. And we carry on. <laughs> oh,
1: so I mean, I, then you just compare that with when you walk into a sports hall and there's some GP receptionist who's been trained up in administering jabs and right. isn't even going to do the, you know, the aspiratory method or whatever it's called, and possibly. Chuck it into your arteries and hey ho, let's just hope you don't get aspiration. Aspiration. Thank you. I couldn't couldn't think of the word because when you're bladder, these two. I know, right? (laughs) Right. So we'll wrap up really quick. I was going to say when you were talking about your doctor friends, having been an HR director for quite a period of time, okay, I'm now a, you know, sort of food interest person, um, public health um, research research doctor, not a medical doctor. There's a certain type of person that can only feel good about themselves by putting other people down. And that's Mm. a really sad kind of person because your esteem should come from you.
2: Mm. And if
1: your esteem comes from you, you don't mind giving credit to anyone else because you're quite cool with the contribution that you've made and you're okay with yourself. Um, So it just seems a real shame when these doctors are like, well, I'm going to feel morally superior and virtue signal and virtuous and all the rest of it by putting down Kikin Ahmed and David Cartland and Sam White and others that have spoken out. Why did you need to do that? I mean, what is with your own ego that you were feeling so bad about yourself that you had to go in and, and do that. I don't get it. Yeah. Anyway, we're going to be fighting each other, aren't we, for your,
0: no, you go first. your
1: broken toilet seat? No, don't. <laughs> so, <laughs> Unless Andy's completely
0: trashed the whole lot. I think, yeah. He might but, have
1: fixed it. He's an engineer.
0: No, there's a screw missing. So um, basically, yeah, I think part of it, again, it comes back to that societal thing where, you know, people like to virtue signal. They like to show out to their tribe. Look at me. Look how good I'm one of you. I belong to you. Look what I've done. And um, to me, it's the laziest form of doing good. You know, Um, and and again, this is what I mean. We've got major problems in our society, in our judiciary, in our regulatory bodies, in our education system, in our health system, in our politics. It's quite sad, you know, and unless we identify them and diagnose them, you can't treat them. And that's why, you know, I always used to say to my patients um, and still do, the, the few that I can still see, you know, unless you've got a diagnosis, you know, what's the tre- what's the treatment? How can you treat it? Like, you know, the reason why you've seen A, B and C therapists, doctors and and not got any better is because they've all been treating, you know, nothing. They've just given you things without actually addressing what your problem is and saying what it is. And we need to call out and diagnose all the problems we're seeing in the world today so that first we accept there is a problem and then think, right, how do we go about fixing it? And I don't have the solutions. i have got ideas about them, but we need, to, we need to talk about them. Anyway, you know the question now that I'm going to ask you. Because <laughs> I listen to your podcast. Oh, God bless you. Um, It's a shame, you know, I, I was looking at the stats. Do you know 65% of people only get to the end? Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. And it's so sad because I feel like near the end is the best and a lot of people just drop out and
1: i liked um secret back i don't know how to pronounce it but yeah i listened to him recently and he did those three buddhist things at the end like don't be greedy what's the other one don't say bad things and then the third one i think was about um something related to competence i think i hope i haven't got the third one wrong but
0: i just like the first one and he's but it's a funny thing it's a funny drop off though It's, it's within the first half hour you go from 100% to 65%. And then the oh. 65% just stays. It's really funny. I, I need to do a sub stack on that. Um, but yeah, I wish people stayed to the end because like, God, I've just learned so much from you guys. So anyway, Zoe. What, what
1: would I, uh, I mean, trust no one, question everything.
0: You're okay, wait, you're 182. You're <laughs> right? still that. You're 182. You've lived a great life. You're on your deathbed. You're going to pass away peacefully. All your family's around you. You've got children. And haven't you got children?
1: Yeah, well, Andy came with two. So it was kind of like buy one, get two free. So, Amazing.
0: Um, so hopefully you've got grandchildren, great-grandchildren. You know, what advice, health or otherwise, would you give them before you pass on?
1: It, it is that. I think trust no one, question everything. Right from right from your dot when when toddlers say to you, you say, oh, don't put your hand in the fire, and they say, why? Um is <laughs> that what you've got on your mug
0: my mug question yeah. question you, everything you can also get it on the hats and the hoodies i'll just do a little plug and you can go my commercial yeah go to my merch store yeah. and get that question everything
1: Never stop that questioning that you've got when you're you're four years old you know don't put your hand in the file why not we'll try it and then you'll find out um but just never stop that um and I wish I'd questioned more because I, I woke up about, I, COVID woke me up. I mean, I was awake to nutrition a long, long time ago.
2: Mm.
1: I was awake to food right back in, you know, I mean, all of this century, I've been awake to the calorie theory is nonsense. diet advice is nonsense. Telling you how you can lose weight is nonsense. What we should eat is all nonsense. So that kind of stood me in good stead when COVID came along because it's like, I don't trust you on that when you tell me to lock myself indoors and not get any vitamin D and wear a mask and don't socialize with people and be fearful. Mm -hmm. uh, I know that that's all bullshit because all of that is bad for my health. Um, So I was awake to all of that, but we'll do another podcast sometime. I wasn't awake to a lot of other things that were going on in the world. So I'd
0: love that. I I could
1: could have, I could have woken up to quite a few more things earlier on.
0: Me too. Me too. So like, for example, you know, I, I won't I be hard on yourself. Like I was awake to the geopolitical stuff after 9 um, and the Libya. I
1: heard your podcast when you'd signed up. You actually, yeah. you were so moved. You signed up to go in, and then yeah, Captain some Military Malik. people woke you up.
0: Yeah. yeah, they were like laughing at me. They're yeah. like, "Are you kidding,
2: yeah.
0: <laughs> son?" Yeah. Um, you know, this the sergeant with this wonderful, you know, beard, you know, oh, it's, uh, sorry moustache. Um, no, but so I was awake to geopolitics, especially then with Libya, Syria, Iraq, everything. Um, but I wasn't really aware to the, the, awake to the health stuff until about, you know, 2016, 17. And then in politics with the Brexit, like I realized how much fear porn the media was doing and how it wasn't reliable and it was just a propaganda tool. And then COVID. And now it's just like, I question everything. And, I, and, and I'm not saying I know the answer. It's actually quite the opposite. I know nothing. And I'm quite happy to say I know nothing But I'm also not prepared to just believe anything, the government or the TV, the the box, you know, that that garbage that, you know, Bob Moran's picture over there, everything. You know, I just I don't believe the BBC or anything like this anymore.
1: I get to the point where I say I know what isn't happening. I know what what isn't true. Yeah. I don't know what did happen, but I don't believe that that happened.
0: Yeah. And just trust your eyes like literally what you see, like I am here, Yeah. you're here. Yeah. Like anything else that they tell you, like, I don't know. I don't know anymore. Like it might be the case. might not be. It might be a spin. It might, it might not be the full picture because that's another thing. Like they might show you something and it looks really real, but actually if you zoom out and saw the much bigger picture, you'd be like, whoa, that's a completely different perspective now I'm taking. Anyway, listen, I've, Really enjoy talking to you. I really value coming here with Andy. I hope he's still alive. Thank you for inviting me. My cat will be sitting on his lap, no doubt. Um, oh God, I could talk to you forever. Zoe, it's been a real pleasure and actually an honour for me because like I said, the more I found out about you, I just realised you're such an intelligent person. You've got so much passion. Like your website, com. everyone check it out. But, you know, I'll put the links on my website anyway and all your other social media like you're just this fountain of knowledge. And what I really, really respect is, yes, you've written lots of books and you can buy them, but actually the amount of information you put on for free on your website, like you're very generous. You're very generous with your time and your knowledge. And that's actually, you know, really quite a special human being from my point of view. I think you're amazing. So you're up there with the likes of Natasha Campbell McBride, like Dr. Sarah Myho and Dr. Jane Donegan. I love her too. Jilly Faye, she's a um um Jilly Jilly Faye um Le, or I can't remember how you pronounce her name. It's all you women. You women are incredible. Um I have a lot of strong
1: women, Isabella
0: actually. Cooper. Yeah, I
1: love There's Isabella. another one.
0: Yeah. Oh, you women. Man, yeah. you need to stand up um and you know, step up. Men well, need to step up.
1: There are a lot of strong women in the freedom movement. I did, I did find that. Yeah, really? we, we gather together and have some dinners at times and get together and you kind of look around the room and go, geez,
0: there's some strong women here. Where are the men? Yeah.
1: Some strong women as well, but it really did impress me how many mama bears.
0: I think more men, women came, than men. I think yeah. more women than men.
1: They came out protecting their children, you know, people like Tonya and Emma Sale right. and like, yeah. Isabella, um, as you've mentioned, um, Laura. Claire Craig, I mean, you know, there have been some strong mama bears, Uh, Charlotte, I mean, just, you know, God, Renee, how many people am I going to remember or forget or whatever, but yeah, there have been some And Seafood,
0: BS, there's another one, I've never met her, Mary AF, she's, she knows her stuff. She
1: writes well, yeah, occasionally I'm like, "Mm, yeah, I'm not sure about that, but that's
0: what we were talking about. It's funny, isn't it? be sceptical. Occasionally I'm like, oh, you might be off on that one, but I think 85% of the time she's on the money. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's good. Yeah. You know, all you women out there, I'm telling you right now, it's good. Anyway, everyone else, we need to go and pee. Not, obviously not at the same time. And hopefully Zoe won't break the toilet seat more than it's already broken. <laughs> but listen, guys, I love you. The 65% of you who have listened to the end. Um, thank you so much. Um, most of you listening, I know you're not subscribing to me because I can see it on my counter how many are. And it's, a, it's not a very big number. It's a fraction. And you know, it's less than one percent of the number of people listening. Wow. So, look, I'm not asking like a charity case because I'm producing great content, educational, I'm really helping you guys. I've invested in this studio and I've now made the ultimate sacrifice by being you know suspended at work. And I'm not earning a penny in the main hospital that accounted for 80 percent of my income. So, and the 20% that's left, what people don't realize, it's not like, oh, I've got that 20%. You know, it takes about 40, 50% of your income to cover the overheads, to break even. So I'm losing money. And I've actually talked to my secretary about, you know, she, I can't afford her salary anymore in the new year. And I'm going to have to question whether I can carry practicing even that 20% because it's just really tough right now. So everyone listening, I, I really would value if you even just sign up to my paid Substack. it's just £3.50 a month um thirty five pounds a year, it would help me a lot. So if you are passionate about getting the truth out and fighting against the system and sticking it to the man and big pharma, then then help me. And you know, just just even a little bit will make a difference. If if a lot of you just gave a little bit each, whoa, it would help me. So enough of that. Anything else though you want to say? No nope. Oh, look, great. Thank you
1: for having me. He's
0: alive. He is. He is there. I've just we've just seen Andy and (laughs) back in. Okay, thank you very much, everyone. I love you all. Even if you don't support me, it's okay. I still love you. You're listening to me. So I, I love you so much.